Hey kids, this is Yoshi, and this episode of podcast is brought to you by Punk Apparel. Go to punk.co, that's punc.co, and enter promo code YOSHI, Y-O-S-H-I, in all caps, at the checkout for 15% off all items. Punk Apparel accepts all major currencies and offer free worldwide shipping. And the last thing I need to mention to you guys is that um, I've been doing this medical lab job literally as guinea pig, and I haven't got paid from one of the facility. And I'm really angry with them because every time they said they're going to call me back, they don't, and they have not paid me. It's been over 60 days, and they have a history of not paying people. So I really appreciate if you guys go to Yelp to complain. Uh, I also appreciate if you guys go to Business Consumer Alliance and complain about them. So the name of the facility is Stay Well Research, uh, which is located in 8... 18250 Roscoe Boulevard, room 240, Northridge, California. So the address is 18250 Roscoe Boulevard, room 240, Northridge, California. And their number is 866-407-0266. Call them, tell them to pay Yoshi, okay? I appreciate it if you could do that. Number is 866-407-0266. And the company name is Staywell Research. Um... I would appreciate you guys putting pressure on these guys because for five or six months, I literally went there and give them my shit, literally. And they haven't paid me back for my shit. So contact Business Consumer Alliance. And the owner of of the company's name, Jay Udani, J-A-Y space U-D-A-N-I. I don't know who the fuck he is. I don't know what his background. I know that a lot of the workers were speaking Russian, but give me my money and get the fuck out of Ukraine and give me my money, you scumbag, Jay. And that company code, the number that refers to company to complain, their code is 1000906956. So guys, complain to them, call them, uh, call them to complain about not paying me, 866-407-0266. All right, guys, thanks, and uh, see you guys soon. Bye. You're listening to Podcast with Yoshi Obayashi. All right, welcome to the new episode. I'm in uh, Miss Pat. I guess I'm in. This is Carmel, Car- Carmel, Indiana, at the stand ch- comedian stand chance place, and I'm here with the amazing Miss Pat. Uh, welcome to the show, Miss Pat. Thank you for having having me. What's your name, Yoshi? Yeah, Yoshi. Yeah. Okay, Yoshi. Yeah. Okay. But you were worried, right? Because you thought I was white. I did thought you. I did think you was white. <laughs> I didn't think. Uh, Stan will have Asian friends. <laughs> well, Japanese Wait, why did you friends? say? Why do you think that? What What did you think he doesn't have Asian friends? Because I only see him with white, and, and I'm his only black friend. So <laughs> that's the only comedians I ever see him with. I'm sorry, this is so ghetto because I only have two mic. But Stan, you have uh, any uh, response to that? Uh, I think I have more than one black and Asian friend. Uh, well, shit, you don't bring him around me. <laughs> BT, BT, BT my buddy. is white. <laughs> he, he inhabits a black body, but uh, you're, you're right. He's a hillbilly he's, from Oklahoma. He but, sure is. <laughs> but it's good to have you, Miss Pat. I am uh, extremely excited because I really did want to bring you two guys together because I think you kind of share... Not to have sex, y'all. Well, we'll we'll get to that. Maybe something will lead to something after the podcast. We'll see. But... Um, <laughs> 
Not the way my foot hurt. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think you guys have like maybe similar backgrounds, uh, kind of growing up in, in in rough parts. I mean, you know, you, you came from uh, the rough Atlanta. parts of Atlanta. Yoshi has come from the very rough parts of uh, Osaka, Japan. I, and I'd like to hear you guys uh, talk and maybe get some uh, contrast about those two upbringings. So I, I think this is, I'm really excited that you guys got together because I think it's, it's going to be a really good conversation. So. Well, thank you for bringing us together. Wait, before I ask a bunch of questions, Ms. Pat, I, uh, first of all, um, anyone listening to this show by now know Ms. Pat from you know, Joe Rogan Experience, Ari Shafir's podcast, Burt Kreischer, and ADF's Talking Shit. They just fucking love you, and you have a lot of fans in Europe. You have no idea. I have, have so no much, idea. Uh, you, 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 they're going to love you uh, in Scandinavia, and uh, I'm, I'm really happy that you're here. But uh, before I jump and ask a bunch of questions, I, I, I kind of want to know, look, maybe you two guys could talk for a few minutes, like how you guys met, and uh, I didn't I didn't knew you guys knew each other, you know, and um, you, Sam, how did you meet? Just tell the audience um, how you guys knew each other. It's not new. It's not. Um, <laughs> is it new? Because my English is fucked up too. I, uh, Miss Pat, you're you, not gonna correct us. When did you? Um, you're not gonna correct us about what? New or no? New or no? What? He said, "How did you all knew each other?" Oh, knew each other. Oh. So should it be know each no, other? No, know okay. each other. Yeah. Knew each other. Yeah, forgive Yoshi. He's only been in the country 30 years. That's five points for uh, me because I be fucking up the English <laughs> English language too, Yoshi. <laughs> you ought to hear my kids trying to correct me. Bitch, that's not like that. They don't say bitch, but that's what they be wanting Yeah, this is, this is going to be the clash of ebonics versus Asian bonics. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but thank God your super white ass can correct us <laughs> yes, both. That's right. <laughs> like the fucking UN interpreter here. Um, when did you move here, Miss Pat? You you came. What I moved year? from Atlanta, uh, 06, the year the Colts won the Super Bowl. Oh, is that right? That was 06. I moved in and, December. And you, uh, Miss Pat, showed up on the scene. Um, what we like to call around Indianapolis, Morty's One. Yes. The, the first Morty's, the original Morty's. Uh, now it's under its uh, second ownership. But uh, Miss Pat showed up there, and. Um, I just remember her going on stage, and, and I didn't know much about your past, but I knew you were kind of, at least I thought, starting out, but apparently you had been doing comedy in Atlanta for at least a few years. About, yeah, about four years. But, I was about um, three, four years in when I moved here. I mean, my initial impression about Miss Pat is that I, I immediately took a liking to her. I think there's something about Miss Pat on stage. You're just very personable and warm, and people just take an instant liking to you, which I think is... I think is essential for a comedian. It doesn't matter what your comedy is. I think on some certain level, the audience has to like you. Yes. Whether you you're be being likeable. offensive or, or whatever, on some level, they have to like you to, to respond. And, and Miss Pat, I think you do an extremely good job. People just love you on stage. And that's what I remember. And, and, and I've always been a, a big fan of uh, Miss Pat. So since 2006. Uh, well, well, when 7th, because I moved here the year, the December. And I didn't really, I went okay. on, I, I was on a show called Real Funniest Mom, January of 2007. So once I got back from that show is when I started to uh, come around the, the comedy scene. Yeah. Because, I want, you know, I didn't have a comedy home. I just moved here with my husband's job. Mm -hmm. I'm three, four years in, and there was no urban scene. What I was, what I was used to at the time, yeah. coming up in Atlanta. <laughs> Excuse me, y'all. But um, 
you know, I was like, well, I got to go and work these white clubs. Right. And so I went to Crocker's first because that's where I had my audition for the TV show. Okay. And they kind of rejected me when after I moved here. And then I went to Greenwood. Then I went to Morty's. And Morty's, uh, they was trying to reject me, but that was my last alternative. I had nowhere else to go. So I said, well, I'm going to take this bullshit that they're going to put out because they got, they need, I need them. They don't need yeah. me. Yeah. So I just humbled myself, which was hard because in Atlanta, you know, you you kill a few stages, you instantly get respect right. in a black comedy club. Oh my gosh, she's funny. You get shit that unfunny comedians don't get, like stage time anytime. Right. But here I had to sign up, which I thought was fucking stupid. Yes. I had to set through fucking sets that just dried my vagina out. <laughs> I have a problem with dry pussy. It's easy to make my pussy dry. <laughs> Bad comedy and cat jokes dry my asshole out. And so, I mean, I had to really humble myself because I said, you know, I'm in another state. I don't mean shit to these people. They don't know how funny I can be. They don't. Right. They don't know how funny I am. So I was starting all over with everybody else. How did you? How did you find the initial responses from from audiences here? Do you feel that you killed immediately? That you were doing well, and then you I was different. I was something different. Yeah, yeah. You you had a bunch of people when I first got here. Not you, but a bunch of the young comics that they just followed each other. If you had a topic, everybody else had that same topic, and at yeah, that time, right. it was all fat girl topics. And so I watched like six comedians go up and they had fat girls comedy topics. And I was like, where they do that at? All you motherfuckers going to tell the same joke? (laughs) You know, what the fuck wrong with you motherfuckers? So I'm sitting there with a dry pussy, but I got (laughs) to keep my mouth shit. Because, you know, in Atlanta, if you're not funny, they they kick your ass and throw you out the back door until you don't come back till you're ready. Right. So I just humbled myself and I kind of made friends, which I met you. I met Dion and then um, a couple of the other comics. And then I became, I I kind of, you know, had to humble myself to Eric, who was the owner, yeah. who treated me like per shit. But thank God Avery was there. You know who could say, hey, who kind of saw a talent in me? Miss Pat, you funny. Right. I think you got great stories. And Avery started to encourage me to really talk about who I was on stage, right. which I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. I was still um, embarrassed about some a lot of the moves that I made in my life. Mm-hmm. And especially like being a teenage mom, first kid at 14. Yeah. And Avery was like, this stuff is funny the way you tell it in stories. And the whole thing is the how do you take pain and translate it on stage so people don't feel sorry for you? It's very dicey. It's yeah. very dicey. It, it, but, but Avery yeah. showed me how. You know, and he would tell me, he's like, oh, you you know, you got great stories like Richard Pry had. I don't think, I, I mean, I hope one day I'll be as great as Richard Pry, but Richard Pry is like the shit. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, you remind me a lot of him because, you know, the stuff that you went through in life and da-da-da. He's like, just be honest with yourself. And, and I had heard that before from comics, like one or two comics in Atlanta. So when Avery started to kind of cheer me on, because Eric didn't pay me any fucking attention. He was the previous owner. And I said, well, you know, maybe I should do this. Maybe I shouldn't be embarrassed. Then I started learning. I started to learn that I wasn't the only person had gone through the shit that I had been through in my life. Like, I thought I was the only bitch that had a baby at 14. Okay. I mean, I thought it was common just in the black community, too. You know, I didn't know white people, Asian people, Chinese. Everybody have teenage moms. But I didn't know that Mm -hmm. because I didn't have dealing with nobody but my people. So when I moved to Indy and I started to tell these stories and people of other races was like, I went through the same thing. And I'm like, what, bitch, what? Where they yeah. do that at? Yeah. So it I, opened my eyes a lot. I think you you are 
uh, talking about coming to the indie comedy scene, I think you are totally unique and totally fresh because it is. It is a lot of, I don't know, just out of college, frustrated hey. young males all t- telling pretty much the same story. Yeah, they mama as, won't. They mama didn't make their bed. They mama cooked for. Yeah. And I'm sitting there. I'm a parent. I've been a parent since I was 14. I'm like, who the fuck is making your bed? You know, you know. Even after, I, even before I had a kid, my mama didn't make my bed, and I was sitting there like, God damn, these, these little white kids are really privileged. Cause it's, I mean, when I moved to right. Indies, when I really started to deal with other races of yeah. people, yeah. So I'm like, wow, you know, you motherfuckers ain't been through shit. <laughs> right. I'm sitting in the back thinking, you know, I've been shot a couple times, I've been beat on, I done had gonorrhea, crabs, and fleas. I done been through some serious shit. You motherfuckers ain't been through shit. You pissed cause your cat. Pissed on your flow? Really, motherfucker? Kill yourself. Wait, wait. So in Atlanta, you really didn't deal with other races at all? I deal. I mean, I deal with. I saw all types of people, but I lived in a. I lived. I lived in a, a decent middle class black neighborhood, and I didn't see a lot of no, and not even in the comedy scene. You know, you have a few brave white comics that would come over to the black room, yeah. and I would go over to the white room, but not like I do now. Like I strictly won't people to see me as diverse, you know, mainstream. So I don't really go do black rooms anymore. Yeah. yeah. But in the beginning, that's all I did because that's all it was. I can see that. I mean, I, I think I've had kind of similar experiences coming to Indianapolis, and it's hard to break into the comedy scene here. I mean, we've talked about, um, you know, crackers, and, uh, you know, we, we've talked about crackers, and you said you went to crackers initially, and, you know, We'll, we'll we'll just talk about it. Ruth Ann, uh, just I, a horrible comedy manager. You know, I'll probably never work there anyway, so I don't care. But well, she was. I tell you, I um, wait, wait, hold on. Were you worried going to a club named Cracker first place? <laughs> I did my show. That, that doesn't sound like a good play. You don't have a well, home court advantage as a black person going crackers. No, you do you? don't. No, you don't. And you walk in there, and there's nothing but white people. And I'm saying to myself, well, it's 2006. Racism can't be that strong. Yeah. You know, I'm a little naive sometimes. But it, you did know. Ruth Ann? I mean, did I mean she saw you do your act? I mean, was she? Well, she saw me do my act. Uh, Sorry, who's that? That's the owner of the club, the manager of the club. She saw me, but she didn't. Uh, I don't know if she saw me that night. Yeah, she did. She was there. She saw me. Mm-hmm. But when I went back, they wanted me to go through the sign up and all of that. Right. So finally, when I got on Bob and Tom, you know, she was like, hey, you can come work at this club and you can bring your show that I had at the old Morty's over to that club. Mm-hmm. And I try to again, I try to take people for who they are. And people are like, oh, she did. She did. She did. She did. And I was like, you know, she's not this and that to me. She so right. far. She's been nice to me. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with her. I mean, my problems, and I still, I never really had a problem with her other than, you know, a little shit she was saying. I was straightening from there. My, the reason why I left, because I felt like if I'm over at Morty's hanging out all the time and when I'm getting ready for TV and Morty's can give me a guest spot no matter what day of the week if yeah. they're open, well, then why not take my talent to Morty's? So that's why I left. I because I could never go and work out my set at at uh, Crackers, you know, oh, we don't give guest spots on the weekend, but I'm your comedian that headline your club once a week, and I'm trying to get on TV. I hate these fucking club owners that's that. Like, you have two or three clubs in the city, and if you work one, they ban your other one. Yeah, they did that, too. I mean... But, Every fucking city have it, and, like, we're working for you for free most of the time. You should be asking a lot of... 
They're asking too much from us. You know? Well, you know, Morty's didn't do that. They didn't care if you mm-hmm. worked crackers. The new Morty's didn't, and the old one either. Yeah. They didn't care if you went over and worked crackers. I think crackers just cared. I mean, that, Avery don't give a fuck if I go over to crackers and work. I had line there, but I worked out most of my materials at, Mo- at Morty's. And that, that that was another reason why I left. I said, because these people are helping me, and they want to see me grow. I can walk in there any day and say, hey, I'm working on something. They ask the headliner. Usually, ninety-nine percent of the time, they say yes. I have never had a no, and they say, you know, go and work out your shit, Miss Pat. So, to me, if that club is supporting me in that way, I should take my talent to that club. So that's why I left. See, the problem with these clubs, they're always worried about competing with other clubs, so they don't want other comedians performing there. You know what? If you ran your club like a first-class business, you don't have to worry about what other clubs are doing. But I fucking hate it. I mean. Whether you're in Seattle, New York, or L.A., or Indianapolis, it's the same shit. They- and I, I hate to be told what I cannot fucking do. Right. To me, it's enough for everybody. You know, your customers are going to come to you, and their customers are going to come to them. And I think it's just an old rules that they try to keep in place. You know, like, it's like when they say... Uh, you should, uh, what is it, pay your dues first. Sure. You, you're supposed to be treated like shit in the beginning. You're supposed to be, you know, not get booked or you know, get just, you know, fucking the way they treat you when you first come in as a new comic. Right. But I don't. Th- I think everybody should be treated like a human being. If, if, you, if I'm funnier than you, I'm still no better than you. We all humans, right? Sure. You know, like, I've been to clubs where if you wasn't funny, nobody wanted to talk to you. I want to talk to every fucking body because I like to talk. You, what, you, The way you perform on stage don't have a goddamn thing to do with the person who you are. Are you nice? Are you are you, are, right. are you a good person? That's all I need to know. I don't give a fuck if you get up there and bomb every night and every day. Sure. But my thing is, keep going until you get it right. Shit, nobody just got on a, a bicycle and pallet, right? They had to learn how to ride that fucking bike. But you got some people that don't want to be bothered. Coming in so clickish, let me say that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not funny, you're not in with the in crowd. I don't buy that shit. I want to be fr- I want to be friends with the top all the way to the bottom because that's the type of person I am. I know how to talk to everybody. And that's one of the most disappointing things because I know some of the bigger names, comedians, and when you meet them, it's fucking disappointing because they're very funny, but they're fucking rude. Well, just rude and mean. I tell you something. I tell you this, and um, cause I hear that from a lot of fans. They be like, "Oh, such so, so, such won't take no picture. They won't give me no autograph. They rude. They mean." You never know what people have on their mind, and you gotta remember this: when you famous, it ain't like me and you and sure. Stan sitting on this couch. We don't get approached from people like they get approached from people. When you famous, you constantly get fuck with. So can you imagine being Denzel Washington taking a piss and some nigga slipping you a no? Hey, man, hey, can you sign this autograph when you dry your dick off? I got my dick in my hand, man. So after a while, it becomes annoying. I mean, it's a, they, they get pissed off yeah. by it. So everybody becoming that category as a fucking fan, and I really don't want to be bothered with you today. I, I, I could understand that, but if like, like you were saying, if I'm a comedian, I am. We're comedians, and I met some of the big name. But guys. then you get big name comedians that want, that young comedians or other comedians always want shit from them. Yeah. I mean, it's like having a relative who know you got money. They gonna always fucking pick up the phone. Oh, my rent ain't pay. Fuck your rent. Leave me the fuck alone. So when you famous, I don't a lot get of that time, phone <laughs> Well, me neither. But a lot <laughs> of time, you know, when you when you when you when you famous like that, they automatically think they. Everybody wants shit from them. Yeah. I ain't got no money, but my family think I got money, so I don't answer the phone. I answer the phone like this. Who died? Uh, n- nobody. Well, let me call you back, because I have to hang the fuck up before they ask for the money. 
<laughs> Before I try to think of a lie right quick. Miss Bound, you're very fair. Um, but I, I, I still have to say when I, I I'm biased. I you know, I'm friend with Russell Peters and he's very successful, but he's always been good to people. You well know? people's yeah. are different. Some people are yeah. different. I mean and, and Russell might have that personality where he loves nothing people. really gets yeah, some yeah. people like people. Then you got some famous people that like to do what they like to do but really don't like people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, Everybody I, I don't like people. people. Like Some people just blessed to have a talent that the world loves. Who the fuck say Michael Jackson loved people? But one of the most talented entertainer that will ever probably walk this face earth. But look how he died with fucking shooting medication up his body because he wanted to sleep all the time. So you never know. Just because you have a talent don't mean you like fucking people. Yeah. You know? Speaking, I mean, speaking of not liking people, um, you wanna? can you talk about... Your buddy Mike Gardner? That ain't my fucking buddy. I don't. <laughs> I, I, let me say this. Okay, I'm not gonna say I dislike Mike Gardner. I can say this. He has not got over the the beating I put on him about six years. Wait, ago. wait. Can, can I can I tell listeners because there's a lot of listeners in Europe. So I I I mean I to be fair, he was nice to me. Uh, he's a comedian in, in Indiana, and um, he took me uh, one road gig, and. Um, I was Probably too I was too blue for his his crowd, so they were not happy with me. But uh, after that, um, that was my one dealing. But he's a local comedian in Indiana, and you had problem with him. Oh, he had a problem with you actually. Well, yes, um, he was on stage one night. And um, this is, again, I had just moved here. I probably was here like two years, two, three years. Yeah. And I just started to get in with the old Mortys. And um, he was on stage one night, and he called his white girl a cunt. Now, I don't well, know what why, 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 a cunt. Well, why? It's I'm about to tell you. Yeah. And I didn't realize really what a cunt was. I didn't really, you don't hear that word a lot in the black community. It's like calling a black girl a bitch. Yeah. But white girls, it does something to their soul. Like, if you call me a cunt, I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, and this white lady in the audience busts out crying, how dare you call me a cunt? And I'm like, what the fuck is she crying for? What the fuck is a cunt? So, Somebody, because I didn't know what the fuck a cunt was. I'm, I'm going to tell you when I don't know, so I don't give a fuck what you think. Why people don't use that word? No, not a cunt. We call get called bitches and hoes. Huh. But um, he called her cunt. She's up there crying. So I asked, I think I asked Dion, a local comedy. I was like, what the fuck is a cunt? Or I asked somebody and they told me what it was. So um, we go in the office after the club clear out. And I was like, Mike, why would you call that lady a cunt? I said, you I said that was so fucking rude. He looked at me and said, look here, you ignorant black bitch. And I'm thinking to myself, you privileged little white boy, you going to call me a bitch that done been through some things? Ignorant black bitch? I said, hold on now. I said, now I'll take the black bitch, but you're not about to call me no ignorant motherfucker. Yeah. And I took my weakest arm, which is my left arm, and I hit that motherfucker upside his head <laughs> so hard. And I took my right arm and I beat him all over the printer. And I'm whooping his ass and... By this time, Avery's standing there. He's like, Avery, you ain't going to help me. And I look up, and Avery's like, she whooping your ass. <laughs> and so he called the police. And I, he called the fucking police on me. And uh, so Avery was like, just leave so you don't get locked up. So I was going to stay there and whip his ass in front of the police. And so... Uh, uh, he called the police. Wait, wait, it's, it's, it's Eric's last name's Avery? No, Avery's the manager. Oh, Avery okay, was okay. A, I mean, Eric was a, uh, the damn bigger guy there. But so Avery said, Why would you call the police? Well, if he you're called losing? the police and he said that I assaulted him. So it, was, it, it just so happened a white woman and a black man show up. Those are the officers. So the, they said, Well, what did you, the black dude said, What did you do to her? He said, I called her ignorant black bitch. And the black police officer said, Well, she was supposed to hit you. 
All right. Awesome. Yeah. And so, you know, after that, he cannot speak to me. But you wrong. He's wrong. I mean, I don't give a fuck. I didn't call you out of your name. I respect you, and you should fucking respect me. I see Mike from time to time at Morty's. He don't speak. He really don't. And I don't go out of my way to speak to you because guess what? I'm not going to lose no fucking air. I'm not going to, you're not going to fuck up my day if you're not my friend. I don't give a fuck about you like you don't give a fuck about me. And I hope he download this podcast. I don't give a fuck if I don't ever speak to you again. Long as you respect me when I see you and I respect you when I see, when I see you, I'm okay. I don't give a fuck. I don't need no more friends. I, I, I'm not going to say I have never used to use the word cunt during the show but like she really have to do something horrible to say that i but think she they, she was not laughing at him she wasn't laughing at his jokes and he have a tendency of going into the audience being a rude asshole and he called a cunt but had he did that to a black woman or like somebody like me if i, I would have knocked that motherfucker across seas yeah i mean that's that's really uncalled for well, he yeah. does it a lot. I mean, he think it. He think it being rude, and I see it a lot from younger comics. You know, get that being rude type of shit. Yeah, that type of comedy. That shit. I'm. It, it's not funny for to me for you to be rude. Because if I was an audience member, if you was rude to me, I'd get up and push the shit but out. But you of know, me. I I see that a lot in LA. And you know who do who do who does that kind of shit? People who's never been punched in the face. Yeah. You know, and like, uh, people who can't fight. Yeah. Like, like, why? I don't understand why would you like. Even if I have a problem with someone, I would talk to them, but I would never call somebody a bitch or whatever. Like, no, no, bitch didn't get me the ignorant part. Yeah, I'm like, bitch, I, you don't know where I come from. You don't know my walk of life. You don't know what I did to get here. How the fuck you gonna call me ignorant, bitch? I had two kids at 15, and my kids turned out pretty good. Who the fuck are you, you little privileged white boy, to sit there and disrespect me? I'm somebody's wife. I'm somebody's mama. I'm not talking to you like yeah. that. So I punched the shit out of him. I mean, and, and, and but he respect me now. And if he don't, I never know because he don't talk to me. He pulled his hat so far down on his head, he looked like he about to go rob a bank when I see him. <laughs> Half of the time I can't, I say, is that Mike Garden over there? Half of the time I can't even fucking identify him. I think uh, you, you two both uh, share something in common. You you both um, uh, <laughs> have physically beat up uh, fellow comedians. Uh, Who you beat up? Yoshi. Oh, well, let, let Yoshi tell his story. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, what... I just, just, just. Oh, um. So, Miss Pat, um, I, I was doing, I was doing a show, and it was open mic on Sundays. So, there was a handicapped comedian in front of me named Al Fox, right? He was. You beat a fucking handicap. Well, let me finish the story. <laughs> That's not a fucking fight. Yo. Let me, let me, That's let me finish. I thought you whooped somebody. Ass. What no. you do? What you do? Break a spark? Break one of those splinters in his fucking wheelchair? But, but, no. What is it called? A little spark? Spoke? You don't broke a spoke out the man wheelchair? I, he wasn't the only one, Miss Pat. But let oh, me. Uh, okay, okay. Don't tell me you fucking round dog a nigga in a wheelchair. <laughs> well, let, let me. Uh, Yoshi, yeah, tell me the story. I'm gonna be quiet. Yoshi, Yoshi, uh, Yoshi, and I started in Seattle, and Al Fox, and he's not like naturally handicapped. He became handicapped in a because he got in a motorcycle accident. Oh, okay, okay. And got a brain injury. So, but. Um, he's a comedian. He is a comedian. I don't. He is still working doing comedy. But um, anyways, so I'll, I'll let Yoshi finish the story. So so what happened was um, he. Um, so like like Stan was saying, he was a normal guy. He went to Van Halen concert, and he was on drugs. So he he got hit by a semi truck, and he's been brain damaged and handicapped ever since. And um, 
Uh, later on, he became a comedian. So it was open mic, and we all have bad shows. We we all have bad shows sometimes. And the new jokes he was trying to do, it wasn't going well. So he started attacking these two kids in front. I think they're 13 and 14 at the time. One of them was comedian's um, younger brother. So he started attacking these two kids. And once he got off the stage, I was next. So I said, you know, we should be very thankful that people are actually on, on, on Sunday night watching open mic. We're trying new stuff. We should be, we should be very thankful that they're actually here on free Sunday night to listen to our new material. Al Fox, the handicapped guy from the back of the room goes, shut up Yoshi before I kick your ass. This is the handicap saying that to me, right? So, <laughs> so I said, I said, if you're going to say shit like, shit like that, back it up. And uh, to his credit, he come back up there. It took him an hour to get up there, that mother handicapped motherfucker. So the whole time I'm thinking like, oh my God, am I finding a handicapped guy? So I turn around, put my jacket on the stool and turn around. And next thing you know, he threw a bottle of beer at my face. And uh, I blocked it because I'm Asian. And um, <laughs> then I think he was trying to get, trying to get my face wet. Like because his handicap so, <laughs> and because his hands are all fucked up, he just threw the whole thing in my face. And next thing you know, I'm choking the fuck out of this guy. <laughs> and every, everybody fucking, you know, it takes a lot to be a handicap and being hated in Seattle. It's a very liberal town. But he was mean to everyone, being disrespectful. And he's been rude for a long time because he figured I'm handicapped. Nobody's going to gonna hit me. But I grew up in Asia and then. We don't give a shit if you're handicapped. If you shit, y'all cook y'all dogs. What the give? What yeah, the fuck we you will, give we'll beat your face in. <laughs> so I choked the fuck out of him and throwing throw him on the ground. I'm you threw him out his chair. Yeah, I choked the fuck out of him and I was choking him. And you guess and everybody's saying kill the retard. That's how. <laughs> that's how much they hated him. <laughs> they say kill the retard. They hated him because he, who attacks kids? But you know who came up and saved him? Who? My friend Cliff Barn, a, a black comedian. He's a very short black comedian because he didn't just grab me. <laughs> he didn't grab me because. Uh, so wait a minute. You done snatched this man out of his wheelchair. I, I was on so. On top of him. Choking. Choking the with both hands. Well, what was. Was he hitting you back? No. He, he was. I mean, he's. He, he looked like a turtle on his back. You know. Um, <laughs> he was scared out of his mind. But I. I but Miss I'm like that. Like once I get mad, you just lose your fucking mind. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm choking <laughs> him. And Cliff Barn, you know, he was 15 years older than him. He grew up in uh, Seattle in the 60s, and he knows when you're angry, you don't just grab him because you're gonna get hit because he's seen police do that shit to black people in Seattle. So he just kind of taps Yoshi. Everything is okay because he he's seen people. You know, so it was amazing. Here's Asian guy choking a white handicapped guy when the little black comedian went up the stage and made me calm because Cliff, Cliff, I mean, I think I would have probably choked him even longer if it wasn't for <laughs> Cliff Barn, but he knew when the motherfuckers are mad how to calm and them everybody down. everybody holler, kill the kill Oh, the they hated stuff. him because he, he, all the comedians, every, everyone told me after the show, like next three weeks, all the comedians are buying me drinks because they hated him because um, when you're handicapped and white in Seattle, you know, you could get away with murder almost, you know, but Anywhere. He was, yeah, he, he was rude. And like he, years later, he told me um, um, when he wasn't handicapped, he and his ex roommate, who was an ex priest, they used to let a bunch of runaway girls stay at their place. He used to fuck like underage girls and shit. He told me that later on after I choked him and he's not I, handicapped I, no more. 
No, he's handicapped still, but he was doing that before he was handicapped. So he was not a good person. You know, who fucks runaway kids, you know? So he was one of those kind My of My baby guys. daddy. Well, okay, yeah. We, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe he knows how fucks. <laughs> but to me... I think your fight is better than mine. I wish mine was in a, a handicap. In man, a I choked the I'd fuck up. I'd have rolled that in, in the middle of 465. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I ended up like, see, m m most people have stereotyped like Asian guys have been calm and stuff, but um, I grew up in a neighborhood in Japan where, see, uh, I have Japanese name, but I'm ethnically Korean. So we're like the black people of Japan. You know, we live in the worst neighborhood, ghetto, discrimination. In fact, in like in early 20s, there's a major earthquake in Tokyo. And all of a sudden, Japanese people are saying Koreans are going around robbing and raping Japanese women. So there was a riot and a lynching and they killed thousands of Koreans in uh, Tokyo. So really, and my grandfather was like a slave laborer. They, they forced my grandfather to go to Japan so, so my grandfather really was a slave laborer in Japan. So, yeah, we we were treated like that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let me uh, ask some questions because I'm curious. Hey, I'm Asian myself, so uh, I'll, I'll ask this question. So you you do mention, and I know that's true that uh, Koreans are discriminated against in Japan. Um, but all right, coming from an Asian person, can you tell the difference if you're Japanese that somebody's Korean in Japan? Yes, for a lot of reasons, because uh, by smell, because Korean people eat a lot of food with garlic. So I used to get beat up. Wait a minute. You, y'all tell, y'all tell your nationality, like, because, <laughs> because <laughs> your people smell like garlic and other people Oh, don't. yeah. They, they used to call us like garlic eaters and shit. We eat this cabbage called kimchi. It has a really strong smell to it. So um, they could identify us through our smell. Like, you know, they would throw shit at us. You guys stink. And, um. And plus, you, they could usually figure out by type of jobs too. In in, in Japan, anyone who works in with a shoes business, a butcher, um, and uh, anybody who work in the funeral business, most likely those are Koreans, because most Asian people are Buddhists, and if you're Buddhist, you're not supposed to kill cow. So sh most shoes are made of uh, cow material. Butchers who cut cows, and a funeral business dealing with dead, like so. Koreans would do jobs like that. We're we're considered like the so dirty people. So you don't people. suppose embalm cows. Yeah, it's it's no seriously. <laughs> they could tell by the kind of job you have and what neighbor you lived in. So they could they could tell, but 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 mostly the smell. They said that you could smell Korean like mile away. That's what they said in Japan. Now, did you? Uh, what what was the 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 neighborhood that you grew up in? Was it primarily Korean, or was it just basic, basically just a lot of um, economically? Uh, disadvantaged people my my neighborhood was mostly like koreans and um uh, some chinese and we have a we have a group of people called boraku which is like they're japanese but their ancestors they, yeah it sounds funny right <laughs> boraku but they're japanese but their ancestors did something bad so they've been like a curse on them they're cursed so i live in those neighborhood you know and um yeah, it was in a lot of gangster types. So when I was growing up, I didn't know black people and Latinos could be mm -hmm. gangs. I didn't know that. I thought only Asians were a member of gangs. So when I moved from Seattle to Long Beach in 1985, um, I, I grew up with one black family and we would play Dungeons Dragon. I, I don't know if you know what that is. I, like I, I, I yeah, know yeah. what that is. 
So I thought every black person played Dungeons and Dragons, put a wizard <laughs> hat, right? <laughs> I didn't know that. I thought, no. every, I thought every black family plays Dungeons and Dragons, put a wizard hat. So when I moved to Long Beach in 1985, and it was this is like the the, the height of crack epidemic in Long Beach. Yeah. It, it was we live in a bad neighborhood. Them, bad, them black people was not. They was running from bullets. One I saw group. I saw group. I saw group of black people all blue. They're uh, obviously they're uh, crap. I ran up to them thinking, "Oh, you guys want to play Dungeons Dragon?" <laughs> Did they beat your ass? Man, Miss Pat, I'm, I'm very grateful. They just gave me a dirty look. I just knew something wasn't right because I didn't know black people had gangs. I thought only Asian people, right? <laughs> I turned the fuck around and got the fuck out of there because, I, yeah, my friend Fred, he laughed about it now because he always tell his other friends. But I, I, I really didn't know that black people had gangs because my friend Frederick's family, they went to Brown University. They worked for Microsoft. You know, they were like a Bill Cosby yeah, black yeah, folks. You know, Bill so Cosby black. they go to church every Sunday. You, you ran up to the killers. You want to play Dungeons and Dragons? Oh. Yeah, open your mouth so I can put a pill stand in it. <laughs> I got the fuck out of there, Miss Pat. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm kind of curious. Like, let's compare and contrast because you both kind of grew up in uh, interesting, economically disadvantaged. I don't think I was that fucking poor. They didn't throw shit at me. <laughs> What, what, now, what and they of, couldn't smell me. Well, they could smell <laughs> me if if our water was cut off. <laughs> oh, wow. okay. What now? What, what part neighborhood in Atlanta did you grow? West up in? End. I grew up the in the West, West End. End. Yeah. Now that's that's fairly famous. Yeah. Um. Uh, I don't. Uh, very popular for black people. Yeah. That's I mean, I mean, so, and, and you were you were kind of in like in a project. Uh, no, area. I no, didn't. Was no, I was in the projects early on. We didn't yeah. stay that long, but. Uh, I lived in a community. Yeah. It was a, I won't say it, it was a poor black community, I guess. Did, I mean, did it, did it feel like there was a lot of violence going on? Not in, not in the early, not in the real, like the late seventies, the okay. early eighties. No. Um, when I moved out on my own, which I was 15, yeah. that's when I started to see a lot of violence because people didn't die in my neighborhood. It was just a struggle. Now uh -huh. that I look back, everybody was j just didn't have it. I mean, you had some, you had some households that had moms and dad there and yeah. you can obviously, you can obviously tell that their parents were doing a lot better than your, my parents. I had a, I had a mother that was on welfare. Yeah. So we, we didn't get shit that other kids in the community got. So I can't say I don't know if I was in a middle class neighborhood. To me, we was fucking poor because we rented our house. There's some other people in the neighborhood that probably purchased their home. I remember mm -hmm. one girl, grandparents across the street, who owned their home, but we actually lived in a duplex and a rented house. So we was always didn't have. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Yoshi, you yourself, it was kind of a working class neighborhood. Is that how you'd kind of classify it? Where you what? grew up in Osaka. No, it, it was fucking ghetto. I mean, they're, they're, they're but did people work? Like in my community, most of the income, I probably would say, if I'm correct, it was welfare, yeah. because a lot of the black women was at home doing a day. This back before the government made you go out. You know, you had these kids, and you know, you was on welfare. I didn't. I I can't say that I was in a working community because everybody mom was at home. My my neighborhood, there was a lot of gangster type, you know. So like, I don't know what the fuck they were doing, but it's pretty shady. And I remember when I was like first or second grade, um, the gangster guys, you know, they were they were asking me to go pick up food and shit. But my mom was really embarrassed when she caught me doing that. You know, 
these these guys are gonna fucking go and kill people and extorting money and prostitute shit. I mean, there was a movie called Black Rain in, in like late 80s by Michael Douglas. He was a police officer from New York, went to Japan, and they filmed everything in my neighborhood. So it was really weird. Um, everyone, <laughs> my neighborhood. It's like every time you tell a Japanese person my neighborhood, it's like, holy shit, that's a really bad neighborhood. And it was. Okay. I mean, were you, uh, what would you say was rougher though, uh, growing up in that Osaka area or uh, when you were in Long Beach, what, mid 80s as a teenager? Probably mid eighties. <laughs> Probably the ones he wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons with. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's it was a different kind of thing because I, I in Long Beach, you know, as you 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 know, we're familiar with if you live in those places, the crack was such a huge thing. Yeah, the, the crack when crack came in, it tore the black families apart. Yeah. You know, because back, back in the 80s, you know, we had just went through, well, I mean, you just said left the 60s, 70s, that's only, what, 20 years ago. So, you know, you had that whole Martin Luther King era where black people were starting to feel good about themselves, and they were so family-oriented. When crack came along, it split the black family fucking in half. You know, you had either both parents got on crack or one parent got on crack, so immediately somebody became a single parent. And you just, I mean, you just seen so many black fathers walk out on their kids. Yeah. You know, my dad, my dad was gone at, with the weed epidemic. <laughs> what the fuck was that? The weed epidemic. You know, he was gone before crack ever hit the black community. In other words, I didn't know my fucking daddy anyway. But um, when, you know, people who had, because I sold crack. Yeah. So I saw a lot of, you know, families get fucked up behind crack. You know, a lot of times either the mom or dad would get on drugs and it would be one parent that's not on drugs. Then you got that person struggling because, you know, go from a two-income household to a one-income household. Tough. And, you know, black people really think back in those days they used to say crack was created to tear the black family apart. That's that's what they used to say. And it tore the fucking black family apart. Because you got to think about it. Black women have always taken care of their kids. Hell, most of them was nannies, you know, from generation to generation. We always, a lot of them had jobs taking care of white kids. So when crack came along, they wasn't taking care of their own fucking kids. And, you know, black mamas, they don't give a fuck. You, you might didn't have much, but you was going to be clean. You was going to be fed. And you was going to have Vaseline on your face, even in the fucking summertime. <laughs> all skin dry. <laughs> we be shiny, black than a motherfucker. It's 99 degrees out there. Yeah. You sweat can't even come out your face because the Vaseline holding the sweat on your face. It literally cracked the black families, right? I mean, seriously. It, 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 it tore the black community apart. And, you know, I sold a lot of drugs, so I saw a lot of it. I mean, I saw I saw people selling car seats. And I was like, I don't need a fucking car seat. How are you going to sell your baby fucking car seat? What the fuck you going to do, tie your baby on the roof? I mean, it all they wanted was crack. I don't know what was in the first, the first couple of millions of kilos that came to America, but it fucked people up. You know, even with my sister, my sister wasn't always the best mom, but she was way better than she was before she got on crack. Yeah, all she wanted to do was smoke crack and sell pussy and go to church. Don't ask me how that tie into each other. <laughs> but she got high and sung in the choir on Sunday. I, I used to work in porn shop, and I know those motherfuckers that go back into that booth where they're supposed to watch a movie and jerk off to it, but they're smoking crack because crack definitely have a distinct smell it to it. It smells like 
baking cookies to me. Yeah, it's it almost like a metallic smell. It smells to me. It smells like something sweet is burning. Like if say if you put some cookies in the oven. Yeah. It's kind of have not quite, but I can if I smell it, I know you'll know it's crack. It's a sweet smell. Because I I remember uh, working at a porn shop in downtown Seattle like one or two in the morning. It's scary because a lot of homeless people. And one year during December, there was snow everywhere. I figured no one's going to show up. This motherfucker walk in, this crackhead walk in with a chainsaw. And I'm thinking, fuck, I'm done. He's going to kill my motherfucker. I mean, who fuck, you know, who walks in two in the morning with chainsaw? And, and he wasn't trying to hurt me. He was trying to sell me chainsaw two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so who the fuck you think I am, Daniel Boone, bitch? <laughs> but I mean, it's scary because there's no one there. There's snow. Even if you call the police. Well, it, see, when you when you used to seeing that type of shit, you're like, this is crackhead. He want to sell shit. They would try to sell all type of shit. I yeah. mean, I even tell a joke about how they tried to sell me some Confederate plates. What the fuck <laughs> did? <laughs> What the fuck do a black <laughs> crackhead get Confederate plates? Yeah. Some white racist ass household. But they was the nicest fucking place. And <laughs> you know, he's like, these are because my, my street name was Rabbit. Did you talk about that on stage? Yeah. yeah. He's like, these are hand painted plates. And they was hand painted. And he had the fucking silverware and it was like a 52 piece. Honest. And on the back of these plates, I don't put this spot on stage because people don't really is to me it's not stage material. But on the back of the on the back of the plate it had hanger nigga USA. Oh my god. It sure did. So I scratched out nigga say, uh, a hugger nigga USA. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I kept those plates for a long I probably could have made some fucking money. Well this same fucker come back six five hours later with a brand new TV in a box. You know what? You didn't what, buy it. He well, he said, hey, you know, I don't know how many inches. It was a big ass TV in the box. He said three hundred dollars, three hundred dollars, motherfucker. I don't have three hundred bucks. How about fifteen? Crackheads are not good at negotiating prices at all. They I just want to fucking hit. You yeah. can buy any and everything. I think I paid what ten dollars or twenty dollars for those plates. I only bought them because they were Confederate plates, and he was like, "These are hand painted." <laughs> so I was like, "Whoever fucking painted these plates took time to paint, paint the paint fifty-two motherfucking plates and little bitty cups and the and the silverware too. This shit gotta be worth some money." I'm telling you, that was the dinnerware to a Klansman meeting, yeah. and they're still looking for their dinnerware. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, um, as as far as going back, where was more dangerous? I mean, I saw people getting shot, which was shocking. Moving from Seattle to uh, Long Beach in the mid '80s. But in Japan, I've seen people getting stabbed with, a, you know, small swords and shit. I don't know. I'd much rather see people getting shot than getting stabbed with a sword because the fucking blood. It's is skeets. It's, it's like, it's it's really scary. I saw one time we, we lived in a community and we used to have a bootleg, man. That's what they sell. Before a lot of states allowed you to buy alcohol on Sunday, everybody was like, we'll just go to the bootleg house on Sunday. And they sold it illegal. So the man tried to run out on his little five or ten dollar bill, and yeah, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, this guy ride up, and uh, this this the bootleg man come out of the house, yeah, and told the man to pay his tab, and he didn't want to pay it. He stabbed him in the eye. Wait, and, wait, you saw this? Yes. I, and when he pulled that knife out there, eyeball that shit skeeted like a fire hydrant. And then he said, well, we even now, motherfucker. And I'm thinking to myself, an eyeball is worth $5? <laughs> well, sorry, Miss Pat. When was this again? This was in the uh, 
early 80s. It was in the early 80s. How old were you? Uh, I was pregnant at the time. I was about 13. And you it, just saw somebody stab somebody in the oh, eye? We, in my community, you saw every fucking thing. You saw everything. I mean, I used to go watch wrestling. Well, you know, professional wrestling. Yeah. That's back when they only had one lead. That was the NWA. Yeah. Before the WWF and all the good shit came, all the bullshit came along. Yeah. So I would go every Sunday and watch that shit. But when we moved to this set of point, I was like, fuck wrestling. This shit in my backyard that goes down oh on the weekend is way more fucking interesting. Like, I remember the first time I ever seen a crackhead get a train run on them. You know, that's when about five or six dudes fuck them. So they oh, didn't I have know. Condoms. I worked in porn business. Oh, yeah. yeah. So they didn't have condoms. So they used, like, uh, they used, like, bread, you know, the bread. Bread wrappers? Bread, no, the, the bread, the, what the bread come in. What is it called? Yeah, the yeah. Wonder Bread, the rapper. Yeah. They 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 put that a uh, Ziploc bags on their dick, and they all just fucked this white lady. They lined up. I don't know how she could take that much dick. So I'm peeking through the window. Wait, wait, was, wait, I don't understand. How did you see this? Like middle. Well, it was it was a crack house. Well, oh. I lived in these apartments, and it, behind me was a crack house where they sold a dope at. So a lot of times women would come over and sell pussy. So even though I was pregnant, I still was I had a mind of a kid. Yeah. So we were sitting out on the porch one night. They was all running a train on this lady. So they were just calling other niggas in. Hey, come on. There's some white pussy in here. You know, white pussy don't come through here too often. Let's yeah. get it. And she was knocked out. I don't know if it was rape, but they was wearing that pussy out. I mean, one nigga take out the Ziploc bag, another nigga put it on. And it was for all different sizes of dicks. And she took it. And when they finished, they woke up and gave her her money, and she left. So you, it was nothing to see people sucking dick on the sidewalk in my community. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it was nothing to see. I remember one time my mama had I don't know to, why my dick is hard right now. But anyway, um, <laughs> my it friend, should be a sad story, but I'm happy. But anyway. Um, my friend, uh, my mama had a girlfriend named Diane. Diane looked like uh, Flavor Flavor. A little ugly woman, but she had a boyfriend that was really cute. But they would get to fight where Diane would get hot. And <laughs> this is way before I ever got shot. They get to fight, and so she hit him in the head with a baseball bat. Again, this is way better than wrestling could yeah. be. <laughs> so she hit him, and he she hit him in the head with a baseball bat. She had like a maybe a little nice little B cups of titty. He grabbed that bitch nipple and in his mouth and yanked the nipple off like it wasn't like it was a mole on your face. And she said, oh, motherfucker, you pulled my nip off. And she wore that motherfucker out with that bat. Oh, I used to love to see Diane and that man fight because it was, it was going to be blood. It was going because if he stabbed her in the neck, she stabbed him in the chest. Am I wrong to think this? Because my white friends get really angry with me. But I think when couples fight, it's because the fucking that they'll be doing afterward would be so great. Do you, do, do you see, like, I think Rihanna, Chris Brown getting fight. I just think it's because that the makeup sex is so good. You know, I used to try to tell a joke. I used to say, you know, like when I started moving up in the world, like in the middle class and I would run into women. Yeah. You know, White women, black women that couldn't get pregnant, like, you know, like a ghetto chick, you breathe on that pussy, bam, she yeah. pregnant. And so when I would meet women who could not get pregnant, like my, I had a best friend that his wife couldn't get pregnant. I was like, all you got to do is push the bitch down the stairs, beat her up, fuck her. <laughs> I guarantee she get pregnant. <laughs> it's something about a punch in the eye that make the uterus start working. <laughs> 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 and my friend, I was like, you bitches spending all that money to go and get motherfucking shit planted in you. Have a nigga kick you in the face. You go and get pregnant, bitch. Mister, I have a new name for you. Dr. Path, right there. 
I'm just telling you how to shake the. I'm trying to tell you how to shake the uterus up. Stop. But, but Miss Matt, don't you think it's weird? Like every time I see this white couple trying to have baby, they can't. I'm thinking like maybe you shouldn't have baby. There's something wrong with you. No, he didn't beat up. <laughs> if Eddie kicked her out down the stairs or ran over or yeah. shot her in the kneecap, yeah. she could get pregnant. It's something. Sometimes your uterus ain't never been beat, you know, because yeah. a lot of times, like when you fucking black men, they'll go all the way to your uterus and knock it around. That's yeah. how we get pregnant so quick. But when you fucking be with shorter penis, he ain't getting up there to knock the uterus Got around. Him. So you can't. You don't have enough dick to knock the uterus around. So punch the bitch in the stomach, or you know, choke her. I'm not saying. You know, I'm just saying. Oh, I'm, I'm good at choking. You remember that story? <laughs> I'm not saying. You know, just beat. Them. I'm saying this yeah. is only. To get you pregnant. Yeah. Don't be out there abusing your wife. Say, so, baby, I need you to take this punch to the eye so we can get pregnant. <laughs> I but don't I'm, want I don't want white people calling me, oh, you for domestic abuse. No, I'm for <laughs> you saving money on how to get pregnant. You <laughs> <laughs> That's why I love Miss Pat. I yeah. use that joke never worked on stay, cause white women be like, that shit ain't oh my funny. God. <laughs> oh my they would just stare at me like this shit ain't pregnant. Like I had a black friend. They spent over $20,000 get pregnant. I'm like, why would you spend all that money when all these bitches out here kick her? And he was like, you know, he highly educated in the service, so he just can't kick a bitch because he got too much to lose. I'm like, well, bring over here and let me hit that bitch with a bat. She'll get pregnant. Because I remember um, <laughs> Oprah had a one episode they were talking about, you know, when Rihanna and Chris Brown was having big fighting stuff, and they kept telling like she was. She told Oprah she still love him because ghetto dick is amazing. That's what I I'm saying. I keep telling people ghetto dick is something about an unemployed Negro that will fuck your brains out. I have a husband who has worked since I had since yeah. I've been with him, and I love my husband to death. But that nigga with no job. Oh my God! <laughs> I think I think unemployed nigga come with golden dicks. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, 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 I you, you know, looking at me like, oh uh, yeah. Miss, <laughs> I worked in porn business for fourteen years. Yeah. And and and, and most people don't want to talk about it, but we're still animals, and 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 you know, Rihanna is a very talented, smart woman, but at the end of the day. That dick must be real. I mean, look at the look way. Look at Bobby Brown and Whitney Houston. What the fuck was she doing with yeah. him? Yeah. It was the ghetto dick. Yeah. He put it down. I like agree a, with her. A, like a nigga with health care could not put it down. Yeah. I'm telling y'all. People are like, oh, you wrong. No. Ghetto, unemployed men can fuck. You know why? Because they got time to practice. Yeah. They got time to practice. A man with a nine to five only going to fuck you on the weekend. Unless he's extremely horny. And, and if he got a if he got a job where it's physically physical, he ain't gonna come home and fuck you. He gonna have to be on the weekend. A ghetto nigga who been watching Jerry Springer all day or waiting to fuck you when you get off work, <laughs> waiting to fuck you. <laughs> There's something about a, I'm telling you that unemployed dick. Why you think these women love these? these you like oh he's no good. He can fuck. He gonna lick areas that a nigga with health care is not gonna lick. And you know. um, one of the best-selling things that we saw in porn is interracial stuff. And you love porn, don't you? God damn, we keep coming back to your porn, Joe. Well, 14 years, and you know what? <laughs> I it, never liked porn. I never really? got out. I never enjoyed watching two people fuck. It was like the, and my husband used to watch porn like early in a, when early when I first met him. Yeah. And it used to piss me off because I've always been a, a, a 
pretty thick woman. Yeah. And he would go out and get bitches that didn't look nothing like me. I'm like, if you're going to watch this shit, could this bitch be least fat with scratch marks? Look like she had a couple kids and been sure. through some shit. Why are you getting this bitch with a flat stomach, nice ass, somebody who you can probably would like to fuck? Yeah. I want you to get a bitch on a porn tape and look at her like you look at me. You taking off your clothes? <laughs> <laughs> but don't, don't. But most people want things that they can't have or they don't have. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, uh, when they say interracial in porn, they only mean white person having sex with a black person. Because Asian with white or Latino with white, it's not considered interracial. It's only black and white when it's, it's interracial. So when we start selling interracial stuff in Seattle porn shops, owners didn't want to sell that stuff. They didn't think no one's going to buy that stuff. You know who bought black guy on the white chick movies? It's not black guys. It's always white doctors, white lawyers, white accountants, all the white professionals because they're they don't want their wives to know they have, they have a taste for the so interracial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean that's you I know. mean I I think I think I I think we're all like people scared to say what they're really attracted to because they they've been used to one thing for so long. Sure. Like I never dated a white man. I had never had a white man to try to date me either. I get more attention from white guys on on my Twitter page. Oh, you so pretty! I'm like, where the fuck you been? Yeah. Where have you been? I've been trying to get a white man to hit on me for years. It takes me to get a Twitter page for me to tell me how gorgeous I am every fucking day. I'm like, wow. But you you want to know the one of the main reasons I think? Because I think I think non black guys are intimidated by black women because you guys are used to seeing such a huge dicks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you were saying, like a ghetto dick. Like, <laughs> no, it's some it's some small dick black guys. I had one so little, I thought he had it in my navel. <laughs> but but you know the stereotype. I think I think most guys are intimidated black women because you guys are used to seeing you guys have such a. But high you know we've gotten to the point. It ain't about the dick. This is when I was younger too. Yeah. I mean, I'm older now. It ain't about the dick anymore. It's about the healthcare. It's how you treat me. What uh, what type of future do you want to have? Right. I think more a lot. Of black women are getting to that. That's why you're beginning to see a lot of black women date outside their race now. Sure. You white black men have always dated outside their race. You know, they since since they free slay, hey, you can get white pussy and, yeah. and not get killed. I'm going after the white pussy. But black women has always stuck with black men's what they know. So now, like in the last five years, I've seen more and more black women starting to date Asians and white and Mexicans yeah. and you know, stuff like that, which is all right with me. I don't give a fuck. My son had a my son loved white girls like he like I like sweet tea. He had to have them for a long time. Is, is that shocking to you? Well, it was kind of shocking to me with my son because we came from an all black community. Sure. And he didn't. My oldest son, I have a uh, I have I have a twenty seven year old, and he never was around white girls. So, but all he kept bringing home white girls. So I was like, if if you cool, I'm cool. You know, like I got a gay daughter now, and she'd go with a white girl. Right. You cool, I'm cool. I don't give a fuck what you eat, what you suck. You know, you do you, and I'm gonna but do, do you, me. Do you prefer if she dated a black girl? I prefer if she just date whatever make her yeah. happy. Really, I prefer she went out and got some dick. Yeah. Because I told her, I said, you gay, but you got regular fucking relationship problems. <laughs> so you might want to get you some dick. You know, like she thinks oh, somebody, some woman going to come along and sweep off her feet and just take care of her. I said, you have too many attendants that say you need a man in your life. Because yeah, the girl she gets, she just run over them. I said, you need a man in your fucking life because you just... She just, I'm a queen, and I should be taken care of. I said, well, you should be somewhere sucking dick. 
Cause you the stuff that you want, they come with dick sucking. Yeah. Not fucking strubbing vaginas together like a Brillo pad. <laughs> so that's my only problem with her. You need to bump pussy for smaller things. The bigger things you should be sucking dick. <laughs> God. I I um I guess that's gonna be part of your book, right? Because did, did you mention you got a I got book I got deal? a proposal. Yeah. I don't have a book deal yet, but I, the proposal is written. Hopefully it gets so. I'm praying like hell it gets so. Cause I could use the money, but who who knows? Who wants to know about me? Man, I would life? love to see a sitcom where you teaching white kids to be street smart. You no, know I, mean? I gotta tell you this story. I was in Dallas, right, and I was dealing. Um, I talk about how supportive I am of having a gay daughter. I mean, my daughter yeah. being gay. Sure. So this uh this Asian kid, I want to say he was Chinese, maybe Korean. He come up to me. He was a big little gay boy too and he's like oh Miss Pat I so wish my mama was understandable like you I said what are you talking about the way you accept your daughter being gay my, my parents would not accept it and they're ashamed of me I said well baby let me tell you what you do he said what I said you go home and you tell your mama you gonna stop sucking dick when she stops sucking dick <laughs> <laughs> I said, when she questioned, why you sucking dick, son? Tell her I get it from my mama. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he right. fell in the floor. He's like, can I call my mama? And you tell her that? I was like, wait a minute, do the bitch speak English first of all? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, it's a new, it's a new age. It's a new time. Kids are, you know, I'm not saying that you got to accept all kind of shit, but I mean, open your eyes. The world have changed. We're not in the 50s. We're not in the 60s anymore. Right. You know, and a lot of times what you don't like is what your kids will bring home. Because I've been to prison, and I didn't like gay girls. And my daughter eat more pussy than the average black man do. <laughs> I assume she eat pussy. She lost her back teeth, but I don't really know what she do. <laughs> she the girl in the relationship, but who knows? You know, who knows? You do. I mean, you have uh, your four kids. Um, and the old, how how. Is your daughter the oldest? You have a 28-year-old daughter. 28-year-old daughter, and then a, uh, you have a, a son also. But your youngest is, is a girl. I've met her. How yeah, she's she? 16. She's 16. She's still in the house. And I have a 14-year-old son. Now, uh, and, they've, they've, and they've been here. They moved out here to, to Plainfield uh, with you. Um, do you, do you kind of see them as kind of sheltered? Yes, yeah, very, very sheltered. Very sheltered. Like my son, you know, I, I live in an all-white community, and um, everybody know I'm in my community, but with all the stuff that's going on in the news with black people getting killed and right. shot for crazy shit, you know, and I know a lot of my neighbors, and he's always at a lot of my neighbors' house, but it still scares me as a black parent that I'm like, take your fucking hoodie off. Right. And he don't understand why. Well, I can't wear my hoodie. And I, I don't want to say because white people are shooting black kids because, you know, it's not true. You can't you can't put all white people into that category. Everybody's not racist. Everybody's mm -hmm. not going to kill my son. But as a black parent, every time you look up every month, a black kid is being sure. killed. Right. You know, it scares me. So I'm like, take your fucking hoodie off. And, I, and it, and it kind of concerns me, too, because, you know, like they do like dumb shit. With, you know, he, he do like dumb shit with the other kids like. Um, ring people doorbells and run off. Oh, so they oh. had they had a problem with that in our neighborhood. And I don't know if my son was involved, but some of the kids he was hanging with was involved. Yeah. So I stopped my son. I said, let me tell you something. You know, and I tell him this all the time. I said, your first strike in America is that you're a black man and I don't give a fuck who wants to agree with me. But it's harder being black in this, in this country. And I said, you run out there 
and they ring the doorbell, you the fattest motherfucker in the group. So you gonna be the slowest motherfucker in the group. Guess who gonna get shot? Your big black ass. Right. Don't ring nobody. Don't. I'm not doing. I said I'm not saying that you are doing it, but I'm gonna tell you this. I'm not ready to bury you. Yeah. And the, my neighborhood are some gun toting motherfuckers. Right. They cut their grass with their pistols. And I'm not scared of them, and I'm not saying that they're racist. I don't think any of them racist. I try to take people for who they are. But also, being a black parent, I got my eyes open. I'm concerned. I have a black son. Me, at any time, the police can stop him, and he can reach in his pocket, and the police can shoot the shit out of him and say, hey, he was reaching in his pocket. Right. You know what I'm saying? And my son ain't never been in trouble. You know, ever since the the whole Ferguson incident. The Ferguson, the Trayvon Mart, the boy at the Walmart, the man in New York. How many more you want me to know? Right. And 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 what I've been enlightened to is that that black mothers do have a talk with their son uh, or their children about how to handle or behaviors around the police. How you have to. Well, you have to because white kids can say, "Get the fuck out of my face." But when black kids do it, and I don't give a fuck how much they try to say they don't, they gonna knock the fuck out of. Put your hands down. Mm. Like my son get pulled over one night because his tag on his girlfriend's car went out. And these white officers pulled him over here in Indiana. And um, uh, the guy said, well, where's your license and where's your registration? He said, well, this is my girlfriend because she just bought it. And then the police said, you a damn lie. This car is registered to a white girl. I'm taking the car. He didn't have to take the car because my son was trying to explain to them that they just bought that car two days ago. They was It was on the weekend. They was getting ready to get the car registered. And the guy was just being an asshole. Right. And I always think about that moment. You know, my son up there arguing with the police officer, he could have shot the shit out of my son. My son ain't never been in trouble. I think I raised a pretty decent young man. He ain't yeah. never been in jail. He ain't never been broke the law other than a fucking traffic ticket. He don't drink. He don't smoke. You know, he go to work every day. But you could have killed my innocent baby like you killed all of these other black innocent babies. You know what I'm saying? So... As a black parent right now in America, it is scared. I'm scared as fuck, especially with I, I live in a neighborhood where, you know, we're the only minorities damn near. And then you got my son hanging out with these other kids sure? and he got on a fucking hoodie. And I've down there went to the extent of cutting the hoodies, the hats off the back of his sweatshirts. Because I'm I'm scared. Every fucking day I'm scared. I mean, he was like, can I go spend that over somebody else? Fuck no. Fuck no, because I know a lot of my neighbors are gun-toting people. They all for the NRA. Well, what if one of those kids unlock those boxes and play with the guns? Or wherever the fuck they keep their gun and they shoot my son. Right. And I know I'm thinking outside the box, it sounds crazy. But as but a you parent, have to. You can't yeah, afford not to think yeah, like that. Yeah, you cannot afford not to think like that. Mm-hmm. Kids get killed all the time playing around with guns. And you know, one thing black white people do that black people don't, they show their kids how to use guns. Mm-hmm. They take them hunting. You know, they, 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 they give them a right to use gun. You know, I, we don't give our kids right to use gun. A lot of that time they pick that shit up in the street. We don't take them hunting into the shooting rain and shit like that. At least I don't. So, you know, as a black parent, I'm really scared. You know, I remember every time I go to Europe and uh, do shows over there, and they're always, one, you know, one thing they always ask me, like, how could you live in a country where you have guns everywhere, right? And, um, like most other black kids in Long Beach, I, I had a one too, illegally. I wasn't supposed to have one, but if you live in this really crazy neighborhood, I'm sorry, but sometimes it's crazy not to have a gun. Yeah. That was my experience. I mean, I, I don't want to have a gun, 
as, as long as I've lived in a nice neighborhood, I don't have to worry about that shit. But you know what I'm talking about. It's, well, it's, I mean, it, it, and you know. I tell this all the time. I try to put this up once a week on my Twitter page, and I say, people, you know, you try to you try to distinguish danger by the neighborhood, but evil have no color. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at look at the white kid who walked in that nice ass middle elementary school and shot up all the elementary school kids. Those people had money. That was not no poverty-stricken neighborhood. Those was white people with money. So evil have no color. It comes in all shapes and forms and colors. So, I mean, you just can't beware of one particular people. And that's what I say about when I deal with white people who act like yeah. they scared of black people. Evil comes in all color, shapes, and sizes. Don't just beware of black people. Be around. Be aware of your fucking surrounding. I look at a white guy the same way I look at a black guy with a hoodie with his fucking pants down. Not that he's going to do nothing to me, but I look that motherfucker sure. in the eye like I see you like you see me. You know, you know what I'm saying? But, I don't walk this earth saying, oh, nothing is going to happen to me. Nothing. Is, oh, I'm looking at everybody. I don't give a fuck who you. You could be a white man in a fucking suit. But, you know, some stereotypes are true. Like, if you, whenever you hear people, like, drive-by shooting, there's a certain ethnic group. But if you hear someone going to school and start shooting people. The first thing they put on first thing they put on the news is that person's education or background when they're yeah. not black. When they on the news for black kids, they put their criminal background history. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Which is fucking crazy. Because it doesn't matter what walk of life you came yeah. from. You committed a crime and you just as crazy as that other motherfucker did a crime, too. All of, both of you motherfuckers are crazy. You walked into school and shot up somebody. Well, then you rode by somebody's house and shot up somebody. So both of you motherfuckers should go to jail. Yeah. And both of you crazy. No matter what a walk of life you come from, like the Batman killer. Oh, he was a scientist. Who gives a fuck? He walked in a movie theater just to Batman yeah. and shot up everybody. Who gives a fuck about his educational background? He is a fucking idiot and he's a fool and he need to go to jail. Yeah, and when I when I, I live in the Southern California, so when I heard they were shooting in Santa Barbara at the college campus, I knew like, oh, it's going to be an Asian or a white person. And sure enough, it was a half Asian, half white guy shot all those fucking people over there. You know, and you, I think you know if you look at it, it's almost like other races don't know how to. A lot of races don't know how to deal with. Um, I want, I'm trying to pick the right word, like struggles. Yeah. Uh, just everyday life thing when you got black kids. What bother you, your kids, or what bother white and Asian kids might be a roll off the back of a black kid. Oh, sure. you worry about that bullshit? That ain't shit, motherfucker. Yeah. Have you not ate for a week before? You know, that's how a black kid will look at it. That's very, that's very interesting that, that you kind of bring this up, uh, talking about having different struggles. And, and I kind of wanted to ask you about that because um, actually, you know, my kids, growing up in this neighborhood, mm-hmm. And 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 really not having to worry about where their next worry. meal is coming from or whether their education is, is going to be paid for. Um, one of my kids is kind of struggling with issues with depression and things. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, to be honest, in, in terms of you, like you material get... things and, and having things, she's never really had to worry about that. But she is kind of sad and and depressed about things. But. On the flip side, I've always wanted to ask you this, Pat. I mean, and, and you've had a lot of struggles growing up. A you lot know, of them. And have you, were you, in your youth, were you ever depressed or? No. Uh, I, um, I was sad. I cried. Right. I mean, I've been to the bottom, but I you mean, cannot, you got. When you were sad about something, you kind of had I don't use you the word depression something. because the word depression, I, I believe 
you bring into what you when you when you use certain words you bring that into your body mm. like like if you sit there and you watch evil tv all day then like say if i sat there and i watch shit about white people killing black people all day uh one of those history movies then that creates anger in my mind and in my body for a certain type of people which is white people mm. so that's why i don't put that type of stuff into my head yeah. head like i don't say i'm depressed i say i'm sad yeah I've been sad a lot. Yeah, but you're I, sad about something that you can kind of put your finger on. I'm, I'm yes, yes. As opposed to maybe depressed, you're just upset about life in general that you can't necessarily. You're you're upset for no nec- no for no, no necessary reason. reason. Yeah, yeah. But 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 growing and up, I, I think yourself- a lot of that has to do with a a lot of the medication a lot of these parents allow their mm. kids to get on like Ritalin and and Ritalin. I don't. I'm not a doctor. But I can say it fucks up a lot of kids. I mean, they can't sit. I mean, they can't sit still in the beginning. Then you give them this shit to make them zombified. But soon, as soon as it wear off, then they still that crazy motherfucker. Then you need another technique. Yeah. Because all you're doing is making this child zombified. Yeah. So you know, I, I think I think a lot of this medication that they put kids on today. I don't know if your child was on any, but I think it fucks with their yeah. minds. Where if you was a black parent with black parent, when we was coming up, we, they, they these kids didn't get on no fucking Ritalin. If you just set your ass down, you got your, your Ritalin was the belt. I'm gonna beat your black ass like Asian Peterson beat his son until you set your ass down somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that was all Ritalin, a good old black ass whipping. Oh, get your attention! But yeah, beat the quick. skin off your ass. That was all Ritalin. But I mean, I see a lot of like my daughter. You know, my kids are you know. A uh, nice middle class yeah. neighborhood and never had to struggle, right. you know, with my with my last two. And I see a lot of kids talk about depression, right. and this, right. and and they're not happy. I'm like, well, how are you not happy when you not put out those and y'all not moving every six months and you got everything and you when you go and you do your sports or whatever you do at school, you got a mom and daddy sitting in the audience. And I constantly remind my kids, I never had nobody there for right. me. I remember graduating doing a little graduation ceremony, and I begged my mama not to get drunk. I said, if you could just make this for me, that's all I ask you. You never come to the school. You ain't never been to the school. My mama never came to the fucking school. You know, when you leave one school and go to the other, the paperwork just transferred. So I asked, I said, can you please not get drunk today? Mm-hmm. I said, because I'm having like a little end of the year celebration. I said, everybody mamas is going to be there. Can you come and watch me? You know, gradual. Yeah. I think it was a black history or something. I don't remember. But anyway, she didn't show up. And this was oh. a Polaroid camera. No, I mean, I'm I'm sorry, the little disposable camera. That's right. the first time I ever seen one. Everybody pairing with that just flashing and nobody oh. was there for me. And I fucking boo-hooed. And I just told myself, and when I had my first child, I said, I would never, ever not be there for my child. Right. Even like even when I first went to jail and my daughter started kindergarten me, I sat in jail doing my time and I said, this shit would never happen again. I would never be too busy to come and support my kids as long as I'm a single parent. Now, I travel a lot now and I can't make it a lot of shit, but my husband do be there. And it means a lot to him. Right. But, you know, like I, I say, I don't get how you depressed and you're not happy and look how you live and you know you got yeah. somebody there to love you. There's no struggle. There's, there's, you don't go without. 
You, I don't, you know, it, it's something I'm, I'm, I'm interested in because maybe that element is needed in, in the human experience that you have to have some sort of struggle. Yes, to in appreciate your life. shit. You yeah. only appreciate shit what you work for. Sure. When you, like, I live in a nice house and this is probably the nicest one we had. This is our second home together. And my kids literally, my kids have a three, almost a 3,000 square foot basement to their cells. Mm-hmm. I go down there the other day. They got shit hanging out the washing machine. They got their own laundry room. They got dishes in their sink. They don't tuck their clothes off in the living room down there. Scroll them off. I said, you are some ungrateful motherfuckers. And that's just how I said it. And I said, get out here and clean my motherfucking house. Because I don't go downstairs much. I said, how are you going to sit here and... You got everything. You got a TV in your room. You got cable. You got Netflix. You got a cell phone. You got a tablet. Bitch, at your age. Now, I didn't say bitch, but this is what I wanted to say. <laughs> but I'm saying at your age, you know what the fuck I had? I had two motherfucking children by a married man who kicked my ass on a daily basis. So you compare my life, you compare my apples to your fucking apple. You fucking ungrateful because you sit here and you mistreat my motherfucking shit that I struggle to pay for so you don't have to struggle. So you don't have to endure the shit that I went through in my life. But in return, I get motherfucking dirty clothes all over the floor, shit hanging out the dryers, dishes not washed, refrigerator left open, house just fucked up. I said I give you two fat motherfuckers. Five minutes to get ahead and clean my shit up. Then I'm gonna start uppercupping this shit at you. <laughs> and they came downstairs and cleaned up. Because ve- my two kids are very ungrateful. You know, they figure, oh, my daddy makes good money and my mama is a comedian and she do pretty good. Right. And just fucking ungrateful. You know, 16 years old, I get a Christmas list. I don't even think the list is up on a thousand dollars, but to I'm a, I think I'm a decent mama. A lot of shit that I used to say, I, would, I won't say it out loud no more. But I said the other day, this girl gave me a Christmas list, y'all. And it had to be over $1,000. And I said to myself, you better start sucking dick. I had to suck dick. You better start sucking dick for your Christmas list. Now, I didn't say that to her because that wouldn't be right. mother-like and my husband would have a fucking fit. But I'm like, most bitches want a fucking iPad sucker dick. You know, but I didn't. I didn't say that, but I really wanted to. That that's a tough. I don't know how uh, um, upper middle class and the rich people deal with it because if they have money and kids know you have money, what do you do? You're gonna go out of the way, and make their life miserable. You're not gonna do that too. But it's. I think you, that's a tough one. When to you teach. give kids everything, yeah. they don't appreciate shit in yeah. life. They go into life thinking. They deserve it. They deserve it, and that they are they supposed to have it. When you when kids who had a struggle, like a lot of the NFL kids who who came from nothing, then they then they know what it's like to work to get to where you want to be. They don't know the struggle of like my daughter, my my youngest two don't know the struggle of having two kids at sixteen, and they should know this struggle. And I constantly tell them all the time, it was not easy for me at fifteen years old or sixteen years old to raise two fucking kids with no income, being a drug dealer, being a kid my fucking self. And, that, and I told my oldest daughter that and my oldest son, too. And I said, the mistakes I made in life, my whole goal is to keep you from making these mistakes. Absolutely. Don't ever become a convicted felon. Don't ever, don't ever commit a crime. Because 
you can fix your critic a thousand times. You can't fix your criminal background history. Right. I said, no matter how old you are, a motherfucker's going to always pull up your criminal background history and try to judge you by what you did 20 years ago. They don't give a fuck. Some people are forgiven, uh, is forgiven, and some people is unforgiven. Look at Michael Vick been out of jail, I don't know how many years. They still, oh, dog, get the fuck off my Twitter page. Talking about a yeah. fucking dog that happened five years ago. Go fuck yourself. Be honest with who you are. How many frozen cucumbers you got stuck in your ass? You you want to you want to tell me about somebody else? What the fuck do you do? You know, but that's how people are, and I keep telling my kids, don't ever do shit to give people just hand them shit to judge you by. Make them work, you know. Make them work to find shit on you. Like I'm, I, my kids know I'm a criminal. I mean, not, I have a lengthy criminal background sure. history. I made a lot of fucking mistakes, but one thing I did make sure that my kids didn't make those same fucking mistakes. You're not gonna stand up in court and say I'm a black man with a criminal background history and I cannot get a job. You, that won't happen with mine. Not as long as I got breath in my body. I took my son to court in Plainfield. Every black kid stood up, had dreads, pants hanging. You know, want to be disrespectful tattoos. And I'm not being stereotyped, but I'm sitting there looking like all these motherfuckers are here for traffic violations, stealing at the local mall, just breaking the fucking yeah. law. And they all stood up and they just said, why you don't have a job? And they said, your honor, I'm a criminal. I'm, I got a criminal background here. I'm a convicted felon. And it, I mean, just black person at a black right. person. And I'm sitting there as a black parent like, what the fuck? Who's raising these kids? You know, because I see them going down the road that I went down. So when they got to my son, the judge said, so are you, a, are you a convicted felon too? I said, no, he's not. I said, and he won't be today and he would not be here tomorrow. He's yeah. here for not for, for speeding or some ticket. So the judge gave him a fine. I said, now, Your Honor, I could pay this ticket for him today. I said, but he go to school. He was in high school. And I said, he has a job. I said, he get paid tomorrow. He can cash his check and come pay you or I can pay you tonight. I mean, I seen at least 30 black young men stood up and said that they was convicted felons. Yeah. And I looked at my son, and I felt like a proud parent. And my son wasn't even out of high school yet. And I said, do you see why I say don't do that bullshit, stealing, robbing, and shoot? Do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah. That shit you can't erase out of your fucking life. But, I mean... Get back to what we were talking about. I do think kids need to go through some type of struggle. Yeah. I got a 14-year-old with a job right now. My 16-year-old daughter, she said, I said, you need a job. She, which she's fucking hilarious. She said, well, technically, according to the law, you're responsible <laughs> for me for two more years. So why would I put that type of stress in my life to get up and go get a job every day when technically I still have you for two more years? And all I can say is, Bitch, you smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, when my son work at Chick-fil-A, and he go every weekend, and he's like, Mom, I don't want to go. Take your ass to work. Yeah. I got you in there. When I get you in there, you're going to stay in there. And then I don't let him spend his money. I mean, I, I remember living in Carson in Long Beach in the mid-'80s, and um, I have nothing but sympathy for them because I'm thinking, like, I'm being, little, being a little girl. I'm stressing over passing a math class and make sure I don't get, you know, that kind of shit, right? I remember these kids were sneaking to a different district in uh, Southern California. They were worried about just not getting shot that day. You know what I mean? That's that's a different priority. I, I know I'm coming home without getting shot, but they really don't know. Yeah. Like, they could get shot. And they didn't even do anything. It could be just by a drive-by shoot. You know, it's just like they're minding their own business, you know? so. And, and, and what people don't realize when you were born into a lot of that stuff, yeah. it's not easy. People's like, won't you just get up and walk away? It's not, it's not easy to get out of the ghetto. Yeah. People think it is, but when that's all you know, then you think the rest of the world, something is wrong with the rest of the world. 
you gotta almost be reprogrammed or you gotta you gotta you know that's why they try to bring programs into the ghetto to let kids know you could be anything in the world you want to be sure. it's stuff out there that you can do because i mean when you around a parent that did what they parent did it's a cycle living in the ghetto is a cycle it's one bullshit family passed down to the next bullshit that's when i family. knew you broke that cycle because you you made an argument the most republicans make which is Actual welfare program is a poison. Like they, you know, once you get that program, it's hard to get out of there. Well, it doesn't encourage to work. It doesn't encourage mm -hmm. you to work. I, I mean, my thing is like I, I, I'm, I, I vote Democrat because mm -hmm. I mean, I always I make a joke. I say, why vote against something you might need? I mean, I don't get anything now. Yeah. But the whole thing is when you, I learned this over the years. When you constantly hand somebody something, yeah. well, why would they go work for it? Yeah. When you constantly, it's a way to help a person to mentally let them know that you helping them. But when you create programs and you just handing people shit, when they were just handing me shit, it's like, fuck y'all. And then you learn in the ghetto how to get over on other shit. You just sit there and could keep creating schemes after schemes after schemes. Yeah. And you never get off of your ass. I mean, it wasn't until I started to surround myself with better people like, I had a caseworker, and then I had met my husband, and I got married. She's like, well, why are you on welfare, and you, you got and you got kids? I mean, you married. But I was on welfare because I had my sister four kids. I had sure. custody of my sister four kids. And my, my caseworker was like, she came my godmama late. She's like, well, you really don't need it. He works. He do this, and then, you know, I'm doing, I'm working and trying to do shit for myself. And after a while, it started to resonate. I really don't need this shit. What are these $235 doing for me? And I remember when they cut my food stamps out, because I used to get like $1,300 food stamps because I had so many kids. And when I was like, oh, shit, how are we going to eat? Dude, look at me. I've gained more weight off food stamps than I ever gained <laughs> on food stamps. <laughs> I've gotten fatter off food stamps. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's like you got... You just can't hand people stuff and expect them to do better. I mean, it mm. goes along with the teaching, and and, and you got to give them a limit. You can't say, hey, I'm going to give you Section 8 housing as long as you live. Bitch, I'm going to give you free housing for five years. After that, I don't give a fuck. Right. You got to get a plan. You got to get a plan. Yeah. And those programs never – they think they have plans, but who are you to make plans for a situation that you've never been in? Right. How your plan going to work? Right. You know right. what I'm saying? No, no, I, I, I totally agree. And, and I think this is something people kind of take for granted or, or and, and it, it, it's it kind of makes me I think things have been always very easy for me because I've had examples in my life. I've had parents who both worked, who, who are very success, successful, who have had careers. And in my mind, it was never a question. Am I going to go to college? I knew there was no doubt I was going to go to college and, and find a career. And I think that is hard if you if you come from a disadvantaged background and you have that cycle, you don't know any better. Well, most people in the ghetto don't even say. I mean, I remember staying when I had my first kid and I dropped out in the eighth grade, and college was not nothing I thought about for my kid. My whole focus was to keep this these kids from co becoming convicted felons, make sure that they graduate from high school, make sure that they become productive citizens in this world. My whole thing was to keep my kids becoming statistics of what black kids become. Right. You know what I'm saying? That was my whole fight. You must graduate. I remember sitting there when I would work with them, you must graduate because my I never went to college. I'm 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 trying to get my kids to a point that I didn't get to which was graduating from high school. And when my daughter went on to go to college, I remember when we dropped her off at college. Yeah. 
I mean, shit, let me back up. When she graduated high school, I couldn't stop crying. Sure. And she was like, what are you crying for? You embarrassing me. And I'm saying to myself, bitch, do you know the struggle? That I went through right. to get you here. You're not pregnant. You did not get on drugs. You sure. did not get high. You did not fucking cut school. Do you know the struggle as a black parent mm-hmm. that I went through to get you here? Mm-hmm. And you talking about why I'm crying? Now, I didn't say this to her, but I, it's like somebody just stuck a screwdriver in my head and turned on my tears. And when she went to college, oh, my God, I started crying. She was like, you cried again? You embarrassed me. I'm like, bitch, you have broke the cycle again in our family. Right. You're the first one to graduate in three generations, and you're the first one to ever go to college that I can remember. Right. Because all my sister kids dropped out, all my brother kids dropped out. And my, my brother do have a daughter uh, that went on to graduate after my daughter. But rarely do we graduate high school. Then you're talking about college? Shit. Right. I mean, you know, it, it's some work. And that's what people don't understand. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's why I say it's not easy. It is yeah. not easy getting out of the ghetto. Right, right. It is amazing. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you this, Miss Pat, because I, 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 I am very curious. And, and this is, you know, obviously a long time ago. We're talking um, 80s time frame. And as you said, uh, it was about 15 or 16 you started you started up your own small time business selling crack. Now I was just wondering, like, um, long time ago, and you know, you you've obviously served time for it. And now you look back at it, you know, but th- this is something you had to do. But it, it, at the time, it must have been somewhat empowering doing this, starting to sell crack. I mean, as you said, you're 15 or 16 years old, but all these people were working for you. They're, yeah. They're, they're, well, you know, it was. I had a few crackheads. Finish, because I. Oh, uh, well, yeah. My my question is, it it must have been quite empowering for you to to. I mean, you all of a sudden you're raking in all this money, and whatnot. It it must have been kind of a, somewhat thrilling at the time. Well, well, I don't know about thrilling. It was more for me survivor, it surviving was, because you, I had two kids. Right. I was 15 years old by a married man that wasn't helping me do shit. Right. Right. In a very abusive relationship, so. And when I started to sell crack, it was mainly to support my two kids because I should have been in school my damn self. I couldn't get no work permit. So when uh, it was, it's funny that you say it was empowering. Nobody knew my age for a long time. You, you mentioned Everybody that Everybody thought yeah. I was fucking grown. Right. And back in those days, it was so easy to make fi- fake ID. I had an <laughs> apartment at 16. I always talked like I was grown. I walk in there, I got two fucking kids. I'm somebody's mama. So automatically, you know, you start, I, st- I learned a lot from the streets. The, the crackheads taught me a lot. Yeah. You know, they taught me how to forge <laughs> ID and to talk and to drive. You know, shit I should have been learning from my parents or my mama <laughs> right. not to forge ID part. But they taught me all of that. They, they having a kid made me grow up so fucking fast. Like, right. You know, I didn't get that time with a baby doll like most 15-year-old do, sure. you know, to, to have a good time. My life started fucking at, you know, it just took off as a parent when I got pregnant at 13. Does that, I mean, does that make you a little bit sad? I mean, you really didn't have that kind of childhood. It do. I mean, I think about it now when I sometimes, yeah. and I say, I, I, I tell you when it started to bother me. Yeah. When my my oldest daughter was really close to my husband, but I didn't really pay her much attention attention to the, the relationship. So when I had my daughter by him, she's 16 now, 
they have a relationship that's unbreakable. Yeah. And at the time I said, I don't like this fucking child. No, I love my child, but I didn't like her. And I asked, I so I go and I pray one day and I said, Lord, why don't I like her? Mm. And something just came in my body said, because she got something that you would never have, which was a daddy. Uh, my daughter had a daddy. Yeah. Somebody who would hug her. They sit on the bed. They like the same TV show. They talk. She's 16 years old with big titties and she still hug her daddy like she's three years old. And yeah. so I realized with this child that, and she had something that I didn't have, which was a father. Wow, that's very perceptive on your part. Yeah, and yeah. I realized that, and I and I had to come to grips that, you know, my time had passed. I didn't have a father. Mm. You know, I, instead I had a grown ass man that was getting me pregnant. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I laugh about right. it, but right. you know, I I think that's that 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 situation was really an eye opening for me, with with a lot of stuff that's you know. With, with my two younger kids by by my husband. Yeah, that that they have a father. That they and, had and a he's father. he's in their life. Well, she, it was mostly my daughter that I was jealous of because mm-hmm. she had that relationship yeah. that I never had. Right, And, right. I mean, they have an unbreakable relationship. Yeah, that's Something, wonderful. you know, and then that's when I realized, that's when I began to realize how I was robbed of my childhood. Wow. Uh, and I, and And it's crazy because... You know, life goes on, and I'm the type of person I don't dwell on shit. I don't have control over. It's the past. Ain't shit I can do about mm-hmm. it. But does it hurt? Fuck yeah, it hurt because I never got a chance to graduate. I never got a chance sure. to go to the prom. I never got a chance to look out there and, and you know and, and you know one day have a father that would be proud of me. I never had those opportunities. Yeah. My husband at any my daughter is horrible at track, but he's right there. Watching my daughter sling that fucking shot put the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> That's she, good, baby. <laughs> <laughs> she, he's right there. And, you know, and, and sometimes I look at her and I was like, wow, she don't know how fucking lucky she yeah. is to, you know, not have to have two parents there to protect and make sure nobody take away that opportunity of her being 13, 14, 15, 16, because those are the precious moments of your life. That's when you fuck up, have fun, you know, really, right before you go into the real world by yourself. You know, instead with me, I was thrown into the real world at 14, with right. 15 with two fucking kids. But, Miss Pat, I, I think that's why they have so much respect for you, because you're a survivor. Seriously, I mean, the yeah. first couple of times I heard your stories, like, it really is inspiring for people, you know. I mean, you're funny. You're a funny motherfucker, too. <laughs> let's, let's, let's get along. Thank but, you. Um, Going back to ghetto stuff, this is a, one of the reasons why I want you to go to Scandinavia because I've, I've been going there for the last six years and there are black people there. But So when the white uh, Swedish people told me, oh, don't go to those neighborhoods, it's really bad neighborhood. Miss Pat, I went to every ghetto place in Denmark, Sweden, Norway. It'll make you laugh that what they consider ghetto ain't shit. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> Did you see black people in those areas? But they're like real black, like they're from Somali and shit. You know, they got their burkas on. But every time I meet these black guys in a ghetto, so-called ghetto in Sweden and places like that, they try so hard to be like a black American ghetto, <laughs> right? So they speak four or five languages. They have insurance, life, in, um, you know, health insurance. You're like, oh, you're too educated. Shut they're the too educated. <laughs> they have beautiful white Scandinavian, white Scandinavian girlfriends. Like, Probably the fuck beautiful out of homes. Like, they try so hard to be tough, but you can't get 
You can't be a thug if you have insurance. You know yeah, what I mean? Oh, like, of you, you, they don't have <laughs> well, you guns. Can, well, with the Obamacare, you can be a thug with insurance now. <laughs> Healthcare. <laughs> Obama allows you to be thug with insurance. <laughs> Keep the thugs alive. <laughs> but if you see the black folks in Scandinavia, like, yeah, it's it's really funny though. They're just they try so hard to be American. You know. Well, you know, you know, I think with rappers and stuff uh, with America making it be, seem so cool to, yeah. to come from the struggle. All kids want that struggle, but they really don't want that struggle. They want you to think they're cool, they're body about it, but <laughs> a lot of them can't handle the shit that go on on a daily basis. No you know, way. in in that type of world when you grew up in such a, um, a such a uh, household, like, you know, like what you got for your kids, staying what I got for my kids. My kids, when I go back to Atlanta, they so fucking scared to go where I grew up at. It's a ridiculous. Oh my God, why don't people looking like that? Oh, I was like, would you shut the fuck up? Yeah. These people are your people. They're not my people. I, when I got with my husband, I would take my two older kids back to the ghetto. They would lock the door and lock me out. So what the fuck you lock me out the car for? <laughs> <laughs> they said, Mama, did you see that lady? She's not on the door. She had me, did I want to buy pussy? Who asked you did you want to buy pussy? Did you tell her you was 12? No, I told her I didn't have no money. <laughs> My son was so fucking scared when I used to take him back to the ghetto. He was so scared. And he one of the kids that wanted that struck, that act like he was bout it, bout it and tough. Yeah. I remember, <laughs> he's so fucking, My son ain't going to fight shit. Yeah, he played. For, this is my oldest son. He was suburban, middle class ghetto. So he was with his friend downtown one day, and these boys walked up and knocked his friend out. Now, most hood guys will start jumping on you, you knock their friend out. This motherfucker ran off and locked, left his friend unconscious. What? Then he goes, I said, why would you leave your friend? I ain't had nothing to do with that. They didn't hit me. <laughs> <laughs> so I got some non-violent black kids. Now my oldest daughter might fight your ass and my sixteen year old daughter. My boys ain't my son be my son be trying to be ghetto. So he come in the house and be like, Gosh, dude. And I said, Hold on, motherfucker. We are African American and we don't use that type of white language around here. Let <laughs> 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 me somebody know, gosh, dude, fuck is wrong with you? But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, black, I because think black kids don't use the word bro, do they? Yeah, they use bro. Oh, do they? But my, I was going to tell you, my son, white friends are more blacker than him. Yeah. yeah. They're so much blacker than him because they really pay attention to the rapper. Like, my son liked the rap music, but he ain't finna be out there trying to do it. I believe his little white friend might try a few of them yeah. things. But my son, my son is so, he's a pussy. So you can't you, you can't even imagine your grandkids and great grandkids' life because it, it would be so completely different. Well, from I yours. got grandkids. I have a granddaughter, uh -huh. but I don't think about no great grand because I don't think about nothing I might not be around to see. <laughs> you know that's why I don't understand when the Republican Party be like, "This country going to shit." What about my great 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 great? I'm like, you not gonna know them niggas. Shut the fuck up. Who gives a fuck what struggle they go through? You believe me? Y'all gonna keep passing that money down yeah. to them? Is how they gonna spend it? So, Miss. Pat, um, you you've been unbelievable superstar in podcasting. So, how how much has the podcast changed your life? I don't know about changing my life, but it helped out a lot. Yeah. I mean, like I did uh, Bert Kreisner, Ari Shafir, uh, Tom Segura, uh, Tom Eddie Segura, Eddie Talking Shit, Joe yeah. Rogan, Joe Rogan, and tomorrow you're gonna have uh, uh, Mark Maron. Yeah, that's Mark really gonna change your life. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they have helped me out a lot. Yeah. As far as um, who the fuck still got a home phone stand? 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> his, I'm sorry, y'all. His home phone is ringing. Only a Korean guy. What is he? Chinese. Only a Chinese guy will have a home phone. <laughs> but it, it it has helped me out really a lot yeah. as far as fans coming to see me. You know, uh, just building my fan base. My my Twitter have Twitter have grown. My fan base have grown. People really like the honesty. I hope. And who I am as a person, because I'm never going to try to be nobody but who I am. Because sure. that's all I know how to be. To me, I'm the greatest person I know. And I tell my kids the same thing. You you should become the greatest person you know, which is yourself. You know, when you start to put other people on a pedestal, they yeah. can let you down. You can let yourself down, too, but not as great as you somebody else letting you down. Well, absolutely. So believe in yourself first. And that's what I always try to tell my, you know, my kids, be honest. I, I try to be honest with my fans. You know what I'm saying? I, you know, I'm black and I voice my opinion about black stuff, white stuff. I voice my opinion about whatever the fuck I want to voice my opinion from. Just because you're going to leave me on Twitter, I don't give a fuck. I tell them all the time, do like my real daddy did. Get yeah. the fuck on and not come back. I don't care. Yeah. So, you know. Because, you know, first, time, first couple of times I heard you. It's just feel like wow. I feel like I know this person. That's what a lot of people say. And I like this person. You know. Well, thank you. You know, and um, yeah, the way you laugh, <laughs> and people just like you. You know. Well, and, thank you. I mean, I, I just try to be. I try to be fair to all people. Yeah. You know, I I think you know life. I got a second chance in life. A lot of people don't. I know a lot of people in my childhood that got killed and didn't get a second chance yeah. to come out of the life that I came out of. So I try to make the best out of what I have. I mean, I'm not always going to walk a straight. I'm not always going to do stuff the way people think I should do shit. But I try to be fair to everybody. I try to treat people the way I want to be treated, which is fair, which is equal. That's all I ask. You know, I, I don't try to put myself on a pedestal. I'm no better than nobody else. We're all equal. I don't give a fuck if I get as big as Richard Pryor. We're all the same yeah. people. And no matter who, how big I get, I should treat you with respect as long as you treat me with respect. And that's how I look at it. So, yeah. uh, so this phase as a career, like, what you know, where would you like to go next five years? You know, um, um, I'm I, I know you're you're headlining. You're traveling all over the country. I think you even said you've been to Canada. Yeah, I'm going back to Canada. I'm going to Edmonton January 1st. I'm going to Edmonton. Um, oh, I heard it's going to be cold. I got my panty liner with the heating pad in the middle of it already ready. <laughs> um, are, are the audience a little different from the state or the same? Uh, I've been there before. I think they're the same at the mm -hmm. comedy club. Yeah, pretty much the same. You think racism is the same up in Canada or is it different? It was too cold for me to stick around for <laughs> wait on somebody to be precious for me. I went there, um no, I went there like in the in like uh I think last year and last year around April, May. Mm -hmm. So it was still I mean, I don't go out looking for racism. Yeah. Like honestly, well, you could be being uh, yeah, you could be racist and it take me a minute to catch it. Yeah. Because I mean, it's not something that I see every day. So, I mean, and a lot of time I might mistake your racism as you just being a fucking asshole. Yeah. So instead of me hollering, you racist, I might be like, why are you being an asshole? You know what I'm saying? I mean, like I was telling you earlier, everybody might not be racist. They just might be being an asshole. I mean, you know, and, and that's what I think that's what a lot of people have to see. A lot of times when you think that people are being racist, they might not be racist. They just might not like you. They might just be an asshole. And then again, they could be being racist.
you know, you tell if you tell a racist joke, I don't think you racist. Yeah. Now, if you call me the N word, I think there's something wrong with you, and I might knock the shit out of you. You know what I'm Good. saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, to I I, I try to be open minded. I don't want to say everybody's racist. I want to say some of it has to be with you being an asshole. You know, because incidents go on all the time where we say, oh, that person is racist. Some of it is racist, but some of them people just, people just an asshole. Was there any instance or group of people like surprised you that they're really nice to you, that you didn't think they were going to be nice to you? Uh, did you have experiences in this, like that? What, in, in my comedy career? Yeah, you know. When I first started, I was scared of white people. Yeah. Well, when I first, I'm sorry, when I came to Indianapolis, I was scared of white people because, you know, I grew up in from the South. And my mama told, she taught us, she said, honestly, she said, white people are better than you. Never look them in the eye. Mm -hmm. Always look down. And to me, when you look down, you allow somebody to control you. Sure. And for years I looked down and I was scared of white people because my mama said that they was better than us. She didn't say why, she just said they was. And so when I moved to Indianapolis and my fan base started to grow with white people. I don't know what the fuck they white like me for. And white women are some of the most friendliest bitches. Like they'll hug and they'll kiss you. They want to touch you. They want to rub your hair, yeah. which we think is a little racist. Cause, but they all hair is different from their hair. Yeah. And they want to touch your skin because it's black and it don't wrinkle, you know, as quick as white skin do. And they just want to be, a lot of them just wanted to be friendly. And I wasn't used to that. And I'm saying, I used to say to myself, get your fucking hands off me. Right. And I would look down. And so... I talk to my husband a lot because a lot of stuff I can say to him that he won't judge, even though if he's like, damn, Pat, you should know that, but I don't know it. So I went to Is him. Is he from I, the South? Yeah, he's oh, from okay. the South. So I went to my husband. I said, you know, my mama told me white people was better than me, and they they like me at my comedy shows, and it irritates the fuck out of me. And my husband's like, why would she teach you that white people are better than you? And I was like, I don't know, but that's what I always thought. He's like, mm -hmm. ain't nobody better than you. Everybody's equal. No, you know, and then I started to lift my head up yeah. and look them in the eye. And I said, fuck, we all have the same fucking problem. White people struggle like black people struggle. It's just a different struggle. You know what I'm saying? And when I when I learned that and I realized we all the same people, I, I started to feel better about myself. And I said, oh, it's okay to, you know, all white people ain't what my mama said they was. You know, that they was better than me and I wasn't shit and stuff like that. So now I hold my head up. I'm not scared of white people anymore. And it wasn't because I thought they was going to sue me or any shit like that or kidnap yeah. me or serial killer me. I just thought they was better than me. So white people. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Miss Pat, uh, you know, we've known each other for a long time. And, um, you know, I've always been a big fan of your comedy. And as I said earlier, I think I think you're just very likable and personable uh, off stage and on stage, too. But um what really I thought took it up a notch is when uh, you, you you might remember you performed at the Gaslight Inn, which is a it, it's a it's an open mic and open mics are almost universally horrible. I mean, it, it's basically you're performing for other comedians and it's the amateur level and people are just telling horrible jokes. It, it is it is terrible, but you have. That's how you get better as a comic, is that you have to go. It's, it's like lifting the heavy weights at the gym. Sure. I mean, you can make, if you can't make a crowded room of people who paid to be there laugh, that's easy. Making an audience of comedians. of comedians laugh, 
maybe there's like a half dozen in the audience laugh. That's the hard work. But anyways, we're at the Gaslight Inn, and it was about, I think it's about six months ago, and you were there. I don't know if you even particularly wanted to go up, but you were there with Dion, and um, we got you to go up, and you didn't want to do your regular material, and Dion says, hey, just start telling some of your stories. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is like the first time I had ever heard Miss Pat talk about this, and she just started talking about growing up and I, I got to tell you Miss Pat I was blown away by your stories I mean interesting and hilarious I think you saw <laughs> me I, I got up out of my chair and ran around laughing so hard it, just amazing stories in fact I, I think I told you that night I even went home woke up my wife <laughs> who was in a dead sleep eye mask on her face oh, Karen I just saw Miss Pat perform it was amazing and I, yeah, I don't do that for anybody. But um, what I really loved about your stories, and, and you've told it on a lot of podcasts, uh, just about talking about your youth, your youth and growing up. But I love that it's the attitude that you're telling the stories for a laugh. I mean, they, they, <laughs> in one way, they, they can be they're, they they they're are horrible. extremely they're, they're very horrible. They're horrible stories. Yes, they're horrible stories. These are horrible stories, but you don't tell them in a way to garner pity no. or somebody feels sorry for you. You're just want, telling for the jack. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. And it's just, I don't know, it was just such a unique and different way of telling it that I just, uh, I think it's, I think it's amazing. And, and I think, I think uh, you are headed on such an upward trajectory, Miss Pat. Things are really, I think, going to blow, are blowing up for you right now. But uh, I, I just think it's, it's, it's so fresh and, um. Unique. It's, it's honesty. And, yeah. you know, that's something that you don't see a lot in comedy. And you don't see a lot from women. You see women either talking about sex. Mm -hmm. You know, back in the day, they men bash. Or you see them now, they just selling pussy on stage. They right. cute. They they blonde hair. They blue eyes. And, hey, as long as you cute with a short skirt on, people are going to listen. I don't have that. I'm fat. I got two kids and two <laughs> sets of abortion. I've been through some shit. You know what I'm saying? So I don't have that. It's just honesty. Yeah. And I think one thing... With, the, the way I try to put it, we all been through some shit. But the way you get over shit is to let shit go. Mm -hmm. And when you let shit go, you can talk about it and you can laugh about it. Yeah. So if I'm, t and I tell this on stage, if I'm talking about it tonight, that means I'm over it. That situation no longer have control over my life. Right. To me, what causes you pain is when, when you have pain in your life, you don't you can't talk about it don't know how to deal with the situation mm -hmm. so a lot of time you keep all of that shit inside of you because when this used to hurt me a lot i yeah. never talked about it mm -hmm. i just pushed this shit all the pain you know what that i went through in life i just pushed it in the back of my head when i became a comedian that was it just that was my outlet yeah. like i started to remember shit and then a lot of time i had to pick up the phone hey did this really this really fucking happen and my sister was like yeah it really fucking happened bitch so you know now that i got this so I let that faucet, the water's on. Right. So all of this shit that used to call me pain, I just let it out. And instead of you feeling, instead of me saying, oh, I had such a rough life and shit, I, I want to laugh about it. Right. Because I'm over it. Mm -hmm. and you can over, only laugh about what don't controls you in life anymore. Yeah. And none of that shit controls me. Like, people are like, how do you talk to your baby daddy? It was really child molestation. I met him at 12. He was 22. This 22-year-old fucking a 12-year-old, that's child molestation. Well, 
And people like, you still talk to him? I talk to this man a couple times a month. And I tell him, I say, the reason why I can talk to him, because I've forgiven him. Yeah. When you forgive, when you forgive and you let go, it don't control you. Right. When I didn't, when I hated him, he had control over me. Yeah. And I hadn't seen him in years and he still had control of my life. So when I became a comedian, it was my outlet. He yeah. don't control me anymore. Right. That shit don't hurt me anymore. I think about it every now and then because I constantly tell the stories on stage or a podcast or whatever. But as far as controlling me with hate and controlling me the way he used to control me, even though he was nowhere around me, I'm over it. Yeah. He don't control me. I laugh about it now. It must be very feel very liberating, you know, to be able to talk about this stuff on stage. Yeah. And, 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 I, I, and not be judged because I try to put everything out there. So, you, I mean, you people yeah. going to think what they want to think. But... I tell you everything about me. You can't dig up shit on me. Yeah. Because I, I damn near untold you everything. I mean, in the book that we're working on, it's going to really tell you everything. It's going to tell you shit that I really can't make funny for stage. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't care. I don't care what you think about me or what the world think about me. I'm beginning to live for myself. I'm in my 40s now. And for years, I've lived for other people. You know, mm -hmm. I've lived for my kids. I've lived to try to make people like me. I've tried to make be, make people accept me because of my background. I'm at the point in my life now. I don't give a fuck yeah. what you think about right. me. I don't. That's why I put it all on stage. And I walk away every night when I walk away from the stage. And I tell you that I had a baby by a married man. I've been shot two times. I've been hit by a dump truck. I've been through shit. I walk away with my head in the air. Yeah. Because yeah. I know I just put some heavy shit in your lap, and it was funny. And you walk away with Miss Pat on your mind thinking, how in the fuck can I get to that point in my life so this pain that I got in my life don't control me? It's very good. It's very good. And, and I honestly think you... As a stand-up comedian, you are working at the highest level because you're putting out your life in a very honest terms. And and I think you've talked about that in the, in the past, saying about how you started doing comedy in Atlanta. And it was as you said, it was very kind of hack, yeah. stereotypical black comedy. But you've you've made that evolution to just talking about your life, as you said, in very honest terms. Well, and, at first I didn't know how unique my life was. You know, I'm mm -hmm. where I'm from. I thought everybody was down. You know, got down. Life had some similarity to my life. But then I realized everybody don't have kids at 14 <laughs> and be able to talk about it openly. You know, you got like I tell you, women's whispering in my ear all the time. I had my baby at 14, and they from all different races. But will they stand on stage and tell stuff the way I tell it? No. Because it's still have control of their life, or they yeah. still embarrassed by it. Interesting. Yeah. You know, when you embarrassed by something, or something have control, you're not gonna talk about it. Right. I right. don't give a fuck. And I, th I think it's so great that you're you're doing this because this is something. And you know, I'm I'm ethnically Korean and stand is Chinese, but most Asian people they don't talk about stuff like that. Nobody do. White people, black but people. But especially Asian people, they they kind of keep that shit inside. Yeah, they keep that pain inside. And to me. Pain creates sickness. Yeah, and that's yeah. why a, a lot of Asians ended up killing themselves because, you know, in my family. A lot of people, period, in America. Yeah. Because they got all that shit bottled up inside of them, and, and people, you know, you like, how the fuck did John kill himself? He had a big house, he had a nice car, da da da, da. You don't know, like, how, look at all of these grown white kids coming out saying priests touched them. Yeah. So, all of that shit been inside of them for 30 years, and some of them never told nobody. Do you know the feeling it was for them to finally say that priest sucked my dick? Yeah. Right. This shit, it's like holding a secret. 
It's like, I mean, it's like the president leaving the White House and never be able to tell the secrets of the world. Right. I mean, you can't tell nobody them fucking secrets. Who the fuck can hold a secret that long and it don't bother them? Now, that, now the deal being with the president may not be as negative. As some, it's not negative, probably. But if somebody molested you and you never was able to tell mm. nobody or somebody mistreated you or somebody did something to you that you, that you just got to hold in that pain, you can't let... Nobody share that pain with you. You can't crown nobody's shoulder sure. because you too embarrassed or you too ashamed or you don't want to be judged or you don't. What the fuck you saying somebody now? It's 30 years because you got dumb motherfuckers out there to say stuff like that. Right. So, you know, that's why people, I, I mean, to me, it create cancers in the body, the mind, the soul. And I'm like, I'm not getting counsel like that. I'm getting it from grilled cheese sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it's a cultural thing too because for most Asian people I think Asian Americans may be a little different but Asian Asian people it's all people yeah Asian people they don't want to talk about it because they think if they talk about it they're passing their problem to someone else so in, in my family you know my, my dad my cousin uh, uh, and my uncle they killed themselves you know and Your dad killed himself yeah well for, for my dad's situation we don't know if it's if he got murdered or committed suicide, it happened 11 years ago. So, I um I, I talked about it. a lot of a lot of people who follow my uh, podcast know already. But on Joe Rogan, I explained that um, you know I beat my stepmother almost to death 11 years ago at the, uh, at the funeral. Oh, you the guy that did that at yeah. the funeral? Yeah, I beat the shit out of her and I ran. So that's why I happened back to Japan in a long time because um, I could go back to Japan. But I'm unable to get the fuck out of there because I might go to prison. But yeah, I, I, she was in the hospital two, three months. I mean, I gave her beating of her life, you know. But my dad, I didn't know he had all this problem until after he died because he would never tell me. Like that's what I'm saying. So you know, yeah. and that's what I hope people, you know, I'm you. You're not gonna turn on and listen to me, and, and I'm not gonna use the fancy words that you probably used to. But what I will tell you is mm -hmm. when you when you learn how to deal with whatever the situation in your life head on and talk about yeah. it. Yeah. You know, and, and let go. Let it go. You can't control you you can't control nothing. You can't deal with a situation that you no longer have control. Sure. Of. If that shit happened years ago, a month ago, whatever, let it go and, you know, talk about it. Talk and help me get through what I went through. You know, just tell Miss Pat, I gotta tell you, it's really hard. Like I mean I mean Stan joke about it and I joke about it too, but there's one, obviously I beat up a handicapped comic, but there's another kid, I choked him, another comic, I threw him down the stairs and, you know, and, and like shoplifter, the porn shop, I beat the, beat him with a baseball bat. I mean, there's just, just so many of that stuff because it's really hard to let it go because my, my mom, you know, just dropped me and my brother over here and took off and like we were living, we were getting basically kicked out of one family to another for like first seven or eight years living in states, you know, and we don't even know these people, you know. And uh, we ended up going to Long Beach because it was that aunt's turn to take care of us. And she, she didn't want to take care of us. So, um, yeah, that's being a man. So, like, I guess my. Do you talk about it on stage? Uh, some, I'm, start, I'm starting to because. Um, but you, it, it, it you was really control over that situation anymore. So I say stuff like this. I say, why dwell on. I don't dwell yeah. on anything I don't have control over. And I didn't talk about, you know, when I beat my stepmother and fleeing Japan. I, I was really worried about it because, you know, you don't want to hear a guy beating beating the shit out of. What you beat her for? Um, because um, a lot of the problem, the reason why my dad's dead, she had a lot to do with it. So 
uh, we don't because she she tried to poison my dad too. We find out later on, and we find out she she claimed that she was in Japan when he my when my dad died, but we find out later on she was in Japan day before my last time my family saw him alive, and I, we think me and my family think she met up with uh, my dad with a couple other people. I mean, I, I think they kind of, I, personally, I think she forced the guy, probably murdered him and looked like, made it look like a suicide. Because Japanese people, suicide is a very common thing over there. Police don't even do autopsy. If they think you commit suicide, they, they just figure it's suicide. So it's easy to kill people in Japan and make it look like a suicide. Hmm. Um, so at the funeral, I beat her up, her sister, nephew, and uh, brother-in-law. And I just ran to the fucking airport. I, I mean, I put most of those people in hospital, but that was 11 years ago. So, um, yeah, it's 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 really hard. And I will. I, I, well, how I, did you get here? Your mom just dropped you off. Was you a citizen? Uh, I was illegal for first 10, 11 years too. So she just dropped me and my brother and took went back to Asia, and, and here we are in the. Where's state. your mother? Uh, she's up in Seattle now. I haven't talked in 11 years. We just don't get along. Um, so there's a lot of resentment. My brother have a better relationship with my mom, but um, I used to have. Um, I used to resent my mother because I felt like you know I got pregnant at uh, thirteen, sure, maybe at fourteen, and then I started to realize I was like, why didn't she fucking protect me? Sure, you know, when you have, when you when you a parent, you're supposed to be absolutely. You're supposed to protect your kid one hundred percent because you all that they got. Yeah, you know, so you're supposed to watch them and. And take care of them and feed them and make sure that don't no harm come to them. But you letting this grown ass Negro fuck your twelve year old, yeah. you know. And I don't know no better. I mean, I realized later on I was looking for a father figure. So when she let that happen for years, I hated her. And when she passed away, I don't even think I could really cry. But then I used to walk around with this. Um, it felt like I was carrying something in my chest. Sure. And I realized it was hate. And it was as when I got older, it was hate for her and my kid's father because she didn't protect me and he snatched my childhood from me. And I said, Lord, why do I feel like I got this extra weight on me? So one day I went and prayed and I said, I gotta forgive these people. And when I forgave them, I felt like I had lost 30 pounds. So, I mean, I understand the resentment you have, but I can tell you this, my father came back to me I first met him when I was 11, and we started to, to me, about 11, I started a relationship yeah. with him. But he was, before he died, he moved to Indianapolis with me, and it was, he was here like three, four years. And I tell you, it was the best three, four years of my life, because all my life, I never, never had a father. Yeah. And when I started to build a relationship with him, the first thing he said out of his mouth, he said, um, he said, I know you don't like me because of all the stuff that your mama told you about me. I said, well, let me say this to you. I don't know you. Mm-hmm. I said, but let's start over. So I'm not worried about what my mama told me about you. Yeah. I said, show me who you are from this day on. And we had one of the greatest relationships. Let me tell you something. I talked earlier about never had a daddy who was proud of me. And I was so jealous of my daughter. But in the end, this man was so proud of me being a comedian. When he was on his dying bed, we was um he he was supposed to die and he was he was just so sick because he had cancer. He woke up the day I was on Judge Joe Brown. I'm going to the hospital, you know, trying to be with him because I didn't want sure. him to pass away. I didn't want I wanted to be there. 
he I get to the hospital, he's sitting up in the bed, and I was like, When the hell did you wake up? I'm planning your funeral. Yeah. He was like, Don't be planning my funeral. I'm woke. Ain't you on Judge Joe Brown today? I fucking fell out laughing. Yeah. I couldn't believe he woke up to see me on Judge Joe Brown. And the next day he was sick again and he died like a few days later. And I said, that man was so stubborn. He had called his whole church in Atlanta. My daughter gonna be on Judge O'Brien. My daughter gonna be on Judge O'Brien. And with the proudest thing ever, he stayed alive long enough to see that episode of Judge O'Brien. When that shit went off the next day, he was back sick and he went on, he went on ahead and died. But you know, to me, a parent. You don't get a second opportunity with a parent. You know, you can get other people that yeah. kind of step in that place. You know, everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's perfect. Nobody perfect, they say, but Jesus Christ who walked this earth. So while she's still here, give her an opportunity. Get to, you don't know why she dropped you off. She could have saved you because you could have ended up in one of them gangs in Asia or wherever the fuck you at. Or you could have been killed or you could have been thrown off a cliff or you could have been over there stressed out like your dad and committed suicide. She probably saved you by bringing you to America. Did she make some mistakes? Yes, she did make some mistakes. But a lot of time when you're in those situations, you thinking what's best for your kids now or best for your situation now might not always be. So I say this to you because she's still alive. Build a relationship. You know, tell her you forgive her. Whatever resentment you have, say, let's start from today. We all made mistakes. You make mistakes. I don't know if you got any kids, but you're going to make a lot oh, of no, fucking I mistakes. You're going to make a lot of mistakes before you leave this earth. Yeah. I mean, all I'm saying, get to know her for who she is now. You know, let that anger shit go. Because when she gone, <laughs> a lot of the stuff that you want to know, you ain't going to have nobody to answer those questions. The greatest thing that I ever was able to do is get my daddy to answer a lot of questions that I did not have to answer to. He told me why he left. Yeah. He, he he very abusive to my mama, but he also he also gave me memories that would last to the day I die. You know, I had a daddy. It took me a long time to get one, but the last three years he was here with me in Indianapolis were the best days of my life. I th- I think Stan have a question for you, but um I I start to forgive. You gotta forgive your mama. That, if you that, forgive your mama and take her for who she is, you know, get to know her. That's um yeah, that's really tough. I, I'm, it's I'm, not I'm, that I, I don't want to lie. I don't want to lie to you, but it's tough. And I could I could relate when you said, uh, you know, you 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 were hoping your mom not being alco- drunk because shit. I you know she fucking drinks a lot too. Well, yeah, well, does she drinks now? Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, I uh, Stan have a question for you, but that's that's the only thing I remember with my parents. Like only time they were really happy with each other when they were drunk, and that's all I remember. You but know? you know, people people's situations are so different. You know, a lot of time. Being drunks take you out of reality. You're in another world that makes you happy. Yeah. I, I, I think Pat brings up some really, really valid points about, you know, forgiveness and honesty. And, and, and you know, I'm thinking about your, your stuff, and you are, you are you are so brutally honest about your life. And, and when I look back at stand-up comedy and watching people that I'm really impressed by, it's people who are very honest in their act. I mean, I'm not so much interested in people who create a character that they kind of hide behind and do their humor. I, I am impressed by people who are very honest in their act, which what you do is just amazing, I think, I, I think Pat. And, and I, um, we all uh, ha- know uh, Jim Norton. Uh, Yoshi's a friend of, of Jim Norton's. And I remember when he did this. I don't know if you've heard him do this. Jim Norton does this routine called Monster Rain. 
I don't know, Pat, do you know? The routine like involves no. him when he was about, what, seven or eight? Maybe even younger, but yeah. Seven or eight, and then him and his buddy would blow each other. Oh, he told me that. Yeah. He Did he tell you that? I remember I saw him. I was in L.A. It was an open mic, and he went up and told that story, and my jaw just hit the ground because, like, oh, my God, that is something that I would bury that so deeply. Yeah. In my, I would not. I would bring that to my grave. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, but with stand up comedy, give you that outlet. Yeah. To not be judged. You know, hmm. not not sure. not people judge you in the same way if we were just sitting in a room and they found out this shit about you. So when you, it's like rap music. You hear like Eminem. You remember how honest he was in that first album yeah. about his mama, the uh -huh. way he felt about life, and you could. I mean, coming from, he was a white guy, but coming from that same background, I felt that man pain. I, it's, I mean, it was not one song that he didn't make off that first album that I couldn't get a visual of what the fuck he was talking about. Uh -huh. Because he was so, and to me, and I don't know Eminem, but that first album was filled with so much pain, it probably gave him a release. Yeah, you know, I've told y'all all of it. Remember, remember the movie when when old boy went doing the rap battle. Yeah, and he yeah. killed him because he talked about himself. That honesty. What can they say when you be yeah. honest? They can't judge you. I mean, I get teased all the time. Oh, you got one nipple? Technically, I don't have one <laughs> nipple. I got shot in a fucking titty. You know, it blew my nipple pub, but it's there the way it want to be there. But I'm cool. You know, but I think yeah. What? And I tell people all the time, if you be honest. When you honest, can't nobody judge you. I mean, they they can they can they can come up with a little bullshit that they want to come up with about you. But what what can they say when you've already said it about yourself? Mm -hmm. And when it's true, mm -hmm. they can't twist the truth. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like I told you when I did Joe Rogan podcast, they was saying I was stupid, I was ignorant. No, I'm not the most educated person, but I'm no fucking fool. I'm not gonna sit here and use fancy words like other people do. But I know what's going on in the fucking world. I'm not naive. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm not hiding behind no fucking degree when if you pull that degree down in somebody's face, they really are asshole and stupid and, and don't know shit. Like I had one dude was like, this bitch is stupid because Thomas Joe Rogan go off talking about uh, something else. She was lost. Um, no, I wasn't lost. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't have an interest in that. It was yeah. it was an interview about me, you stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> right. You know, but you can't tell people that. Oh, she don't know nothing about what's going on over in us, uh, what overseas. I don't give a fuck. Right. How about that? Right. I don't give a fuck till they come over here and kidnap me. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't you can't say the world. You sit there and you watch CNN and you put all that bullshit, or you watch Fox News and you put all that bullshit in your body, then what are they going to do? It make you go stick a pistol in your head because you begin to believe that shit going to happen over here. Well, then deal with it when it get here. Go get you a pistol and buy you a lot of bullets and get ready. That's all I got to say. Right. Yeah, you know, right. but you, you have people like that. And I, I'm realizing that people are going to say what the fuck they, they want to say about you. They're going to say mean shit. Because when I first started doing podcasts and they started to talk about me, I was like, where people do this shit at? I'm from a world where if you're going to say something about somebody, you said in their face so they can knock the shit out of you if they don't like it. <laughs> but then I realized it's a bunch of fucking keyboard, keyboard thugs out there. Yeah. So I was like, oh, fuck yourself. Yeah. You, yeah, it's a bunch of keyboard yeah. keyboard thugs. So it's okay with me. You know, yeah. you the motherfuckers that have no life and can't deal with your own situation. So you get online and try to look at other people and judge them when technically you probably somebody with a small dick with a frozen cucumber in your ass with no girlfriend and a boy with girl titties. 
fuck you. That's what I say. What are they going to do? They going to come to my show and whoop my ass? Yeah. No. I mean, I, mean, I, do, I do love that about... Um, because you frame your stories, your life stories in such a way that I think they're just hilarious. They're just, you, you tell them, you put them out there, and, and, and it's not to garner pity or sorrow from the audience, you know, which... I don't want you to feel sorry. I want no, you to laugh. I want, and and they, they are. They're just hilarious. I have a manager be like, how do these people laugh at this shit? Because it's funny, and I'm laughing, and I'm not <laughs> feeling sorry for myself. Right. And I know when the, in the audience, when it's too heavy sometimes, and I yeah. stop and I say, look, Open your minds. This shit happened 20 years ago, but we're going to laugh about it today. Right. You know, right. You and can, I, I, I sometimes I have to pamper the audience. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's heavy. It's heavy to hear to hear a 11-year-old uh, girl jacking a white man dick for $100. <laughs> but I'm like, don't think about the dick I jack. Think about the $100 that I made. That was a lot of money in the ghetto back in those days. I bought wrestling tickets. I bought ice cream. I was able to eat the whole weekend. Think about what that dick jacking got me. It got me a wrestling ticket, a meal. It got me candy. Don't think about the dick that I jacked. And that's what I try to tell people. Don't think about that. Think about what I did with right. the $100. Do you still follow uh, wrestling? Do you like wrestling? Oh, still? No, no you Not don't. I moved out that neighborhood where everybody was stabbing each other. No, nah, <laughs> I don't follow wrestling. I used to, my granddaddy used to watch that shit. He yeah. swore that shit was real. Back in the day when Thunderbolt Patterson and Dusty Rhodes was around. Oh, wow. And you know, that, back in, that was back in the 70s when you really couldn't slap the shit out of a white man unless y'all had on booty shorts. <laughs> and so my granddaddy used to love to see them black wrestlers right. with them white wrestlers' ass because he was probably racist too. <laughs> and uh, that's how I got into it, watching it with my granddaddy. So these days, you know, when you're not working, what do you do for fun? Do you do you go vacation? Well, you know, Miss um, Pat, you're working too hard. You gotta you gotta take care of Miss Pat too. Uh, you know what? I um, I like I like DIY stuff. Like I just left the Goodwill. I bought two fucking bar stools for seven dollars yeah. a piece. Then I'm gonna go home and sand down and fix the shit out of. And when you sing, like ain't no way in the fuck that same same shit. I like doing that. Mm -hmm. I got into that a couple of years ago. So I keep my garage full of Craigslist shit. Yeah. Goodwill shit. I just like unique shit. And it ain't because I can't afford it, because I just like buying shit and redoing it. So I do a lot of that. And that's what I like to do. I put my little music on in the garage and I just saying shit and I fix it and I put it in my house. Um, I, I, Kind of jumping subjects from DIY. DIY, but we we're talking about this earlier. I don't know if we've—I've uh, heard this on 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 many podcasts. But it seems to me that your your husband has really served as um, a mentor in your life. Yes, he has. I mean, you really—you uh, don't understand something, or you go, why do people behave like that? Or I, I never knew this before. You kind of kind of go to him. What what's his background in terms of? I mean, it, it's it, um, did he grow up in a black neighborhood exclusively? Yeah, but, he grew up with his mom and dad. It was sixteen of them. Okay. And he had a daddy that. Mm -hmm, he's a twin. My husband had a daddy that uh, worked. Atlanta at, also? Or? Was, yeah, in Atlanta. They okay. wasn't on welfare. It was a middle-class black family. Okay. And um, he, um, he, um, what the fuck was I about to say? I was looking at something. I mean, it was 16, 16 kids. kids. He's a twin. Yeah. And. I mean, he didn't grow up like I did. Like, this shit, my life blow his mind and he black. 
Right. And when I first right. <laughs> exactly yeah, <laughs> when I first started telling him, she's like, "Ooh!" When I first started becoming a comedian, he was like, "You shouldn't tell people that. That ain't funny. That's horrible." I said, "This shit is funny to me, motherfucker." Right. He's like, "Pat, you shouldn't tell people you jack dicks for a hundred dollars. Fuck you. <laughs> you just mad because you wasn't there and I had to split the hundred dollars with you." <laughs> right. <laughs> But so, I mean, it, it sounds like he. I mean, but he, I mean, he was in the army, I believe. For he was a in the while, military. But, graduated. Uh, uh, good kid. Uh, but never been in trouble. Uh, never had a problem out of him. He had no kids. That's very rare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, uh, just a, a straight stand-up guy. You know, he always been there. I used to call him my hater, but I realized he was my motivator. Uh-huh. Like when I was when I was on welfare and I wanted to do shit illegal, and he's like, "Don't do stuff like that." Yeah. He's like, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't have a chance." And like, I got pregnant at fourteen, and I'm this. I wanted to feel sorry for myself. He's like, "Look, don't nobody owe you shit." Uh-huh. He said, he said, he said, you can whine about it or you can do something about it. He said, he said, life. He said, you're gonna get out of life what you're gonna put into life. And at that time, Outkast had just dropped their first album. Okay. And he used, get up, get out, and get something. Don't let the days of your life pass you by. I said, that shit sound familiar. Where you get that from? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you should listen to that new Outkast album. And then maybe you'll get motivated. He's like, stop whining. Don't nobody owe you shit. Do something with your life. Yeah. And it started to click. And then I met my caseworker who encouraged me to get off welfare. And, you know, but he's been my biggest bandwagon person mm-hmm. from the beginning. You know, you know, he taught me, don't be lazy. Don't expect nothing out of nobody. Do shit for yourself. Yeah. I've been with this man 23 years, and this man have only been out of a job maybe for a month. Right. Always work, always paid the bills, always taking care of me. Do you, uh, do you still go to him for any career advice? Uh, now in the beginning I didn't because he didn't like my comedy because yeah, yeah. it was just typical, you know, urban shit. But later on, as I as I'm grown over the years, like when I went on tour with Cat Williams yeah. and I started to find myself, he started to get involved. Okay. And then when I got my manager, and you know my manager would tell me something, but somehow they tell me the same shit, uh-huh. and it you know, and I feel like I'm in the middle of them, and I was like, oh, they both. Double teaming, d- double teaming me. Maybe I need to start listening. So now he's very involved. He believe in me, and he showed sure in the beginning he wouldn't. He said because I had chicken house jokes. Wait, now I remember what I want to ask you. So what was it like working with Cat Williams? How did you meet him, and how did you end up working for him? I had an agent. Uh, it was ICM at the time, and yeah. they was his agent. And he was looking for a girl, a different girl, because it was all girls on his tour. Right. And uh, they sent him a clip, and he liked me because I did more, like, family material. You know a girl named Cookie? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. I think she used to open for him. But, well, okay. she wasn't on the tour I was on. Okay. And so she, uh, they sent him a clip. He was, I tell you, one of the most intelligent pe- pe- people that I've ever met. Very mm-hmm. smart man. Very funny, knows comedy. Yeah. Very I mean, I have nothing but respect for this man, and, and it, is, it ain't even about the tour he took me on. It's the it's the character of him. Yeah. My father passed away on a Monday. I get a call from ICM on a Wednesday that I'm going on tour with Cat Williams. I'm just dealing with the death of my daddy. Right. So I said, okay, I accepted. They said you need to pack your bag. You're leaving Friday. Yeah. And I don't know what the first city we flew to. They flew me to. Make a long story short, I fly out there, and Cat like to get everybody in his room, get to know everybody. Right, right. And that's what I like about him. So um, we sitting there, and the next morning we waiting to be paid. 
or some reason I'm in his room and um, I'm on the phone with my brother and he's like, well, how are we going to get to the funeral? And I was like, well, I'm, make, I'm with Cat William. I'm making this money. As soon as I get paid, I'm going to get y'all some money so y'all can come to the funeral. So he overhears the conversation and he said, what's going on? I said, oh, my daddy passed on Monday. We trying to get him buried, you know, by next Tuesday right. or something. I said, but I got to get my family. And he's like, oh, okay. So I'm talking to my brother. I'm talking to my sister, everybody, because, you know, we ain't got no yeah. money. Cat William go to the back, y'all, and come back with a stack of $100 bills. And he hand them to me. I, no, I wasn't there to get paid. I was there for something. They're just hanging out in his room. Right, and yeah. I was like, what is this? He was like, go and bury your daddy. It was $4,000. Oh, wow. so and I didn't have enough money to pay for his funeral. Yeah. So we not only was I struggling to pay for the funeral, but I also trying to get my brothers and sisters to Indianapolis so they can come to the funeral. Right. And it blew me a fucking way. And I was like, you don't have to do this. I'm I'm good. Because I had 16 dates with him and I was getting paid pretty good. You know, I was like, you know, I mean, you know, my husband got credit cards and shit like that. I could have put him on that. He a little saving. Yeah. He's like, no, go bury your daddy and come on back. And these are the kind of story you don't hear about Cat Williams. You know? No, that's the kind of story you do not hear about Cat yeah, Williams. Yeah, and because other stuff that you hear, I don't know what to make of it. Because last story I heard, I don't know if it's true. He supposedly pulled a gun at the comedy store or something. I don't know what happened. You I know? don't know, but I mean, I don't listen to stuff people say about people. Yeah, uh, you know, I just deal with how they, how I, you know, how I deal with them. I, I met him once. He was really, really nice. I, I mean, mean, after he helped me bury my daddy, because before he stepped mm -hmm. up, if I wouldn't win in my husband wouldn't win in his saving, wouldn't win in our saving, my daddy had to be in a fucking potato sack. I don't know if you ever seen a Negro in a potato sack, but that's the same color as the Negro. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So, <laughs> Jesus fucking. I knew we was trying to keep my yeah. dad out that potato sack yeah. when he brought that four thousand dollars cause he had like a Porsche insurance. I was yeah. like Holy fuck. I mean, when I tell you this casket was so cold-blooded, my daddy stood up and said, damn, y'all putting a nigga away right. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was able to get my family up here and everything. Yeah, he gave me about $4,000. So, and so that must have been a really fun tour, right? I mean, after It was you, a very fun, yeah. fun tour. That's the first time I ever had been in front of 20,000 people God per damn. night. The pay was excellent. I mean, you you got treated like Cat William treated everybody like Cat William was being treated. Yeah. Like we had one a person who was assigned to tote your bag. I was like, dude, you ain't got to do all this shit because I know once it's too over, ain't nobody going to treat my ass like that. Don't be giving me this type of treatment and yeah. running me crazy. Then when I get in the real world, I'm at the airport. Y'all ain't going to get my fucking bag. Well, who the fuck are you, bitch? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it was it was always custom everything. Uh, I mean, and people people say what they want to say about Cat Whitney. Cat Whitney, I know, the most generous, funniest person. I mean, I remember telling Cat Williams my family stories, and we in his hotel room, always a suite, and he would be on the floor crying, laughing. And, you know, I never look at anybody as a megastar, which he's a megastar. Sure. And I remember one day I was sitting there, and he was crying, laughing. But one of my family jokes, uh, stories, and I look, and I was like, I got fucking Cat William on this floor laughing at me. I mean, I got Cat William fucking laughing at me. I mean, how many people get that opportunity to have Cat William busting a gut laughing at them? The most down earth person. Because, you know, he could have been like, oh, bitch, I'm the star. Ain't nobody on this tour as funny as me. But laughing at shit that I had been through that I laugh about. And used to look at me like, you used to do that on stage. I don't know if I can do that shit on stage, Cat. But one of the most nicest person yeah. I ever worked for. Now I work for a lot of them. Um, yeah. I had my, um, I think we talked a little bit about Patrice O'Neill too. And yeah. what, what, what was Fucking your experience? Hilarious. 
I worked with Patrice like a year before he died. I think we was at the. Um, that was your first time meeting him too. I had met him before, but yeah. not. I've seen him. We've been in the same room. Well, okay, okay. When I went to do, uh, I was his opening act. I think I was an opener or the MC or something like that. I, I was on the show, and we was in Cleveland. And um, everybody said Patrice was mean. So I kind of put in my head, look, this motherfucker ain't finna be disrespecting me. I ain't finna have no give a fuck who you is. Yeah. You ain't finna talk to me like that. So I had already programmed my mind to fight back. So we get there, and the uh, the, the, the the white comic was on the show. And he was like, Patrice, do you mind if I sell my DVD? And Patrice oh, said, you. Because no. <laughs> you're always supposed to oh, ask the no. headline. Patrice said, you young motherfucking comics ain't did shit. Want to sell your goddamn CD? What the fuck you doing with a CD? And I'm like, holy shit. shit. This motherfucker is really mean. Yeah. And so I looked at him. I said, well, I got a CD, too, and I need some money. Can I sell mine, too? And he's like, I don't give a fuck if y'all sell y'all CD. Yeah. And so. It was the whole weekend, the nicest fucking person, a gentle giant. And I had already programmed my head, say, fuck you, I quit this gig, I'm out this bitch. I had already, <laughs> I had already knew how I was going to drop the mic and quit because I thought he was going to call me all kind of fat bitches and, you know, just be totally disrespectful because that's what I had heard sure. of him. So I had already practiced my quitting role like that lady who was on TV say, fuck it, I'm out of here who was smoking that weed. I had already practice my drop the mic well you know jim norton told me that if, if he doesn't pick on you that he doesn't like you that's why he told me you know and patrice i've known him for years but like that's the one time i worked with him like three months before he passed away and like it made me sad because it kind of ended in a really sour like he, he basically told me how much he hated asian people and half the time i laugh because like yeah i agree you know because he he's a funny honest guy honest. one of the most brilliant and funny comedians people loved about patrice yeah. because he was one of the most honest comedians out there. He Hilarious didn't tell guy. you about no. He told you what he felt about shit, and he didn't give a fuck how you took it. And you can take it at any end of your asshole you wanted, but it was going in there. <laughs> he was honest. He and I tell you, he's not one of the reasons why I became honest. Watching Richard Pryor, yeah, when um, uh, my neighbor was a fucking comedy freak, and he was like. I would tell stories about my life, but not on stage earlier. He was like, you should go and look at Richard Pryor. So when I moved to Indy, I started to study Richard Pryor, and I bought his books. Well, I stole his book from the library. And I ran <laughs> <laughs> hey, that shit cost too much. So I found a library card and checked them out and never checked them back in. <laughs> so I read his fucking books, and I was like, holy fuck. How does somebody be this honest? Because in his book, he talk about how— Growing up in brothel and— yeah, yeah, growing up in a brought I grew up in a bootleg house. Yeah. So he also talked about uh, uh, how the man in his neighborhood sucked his dick. Yeah. And how when he became a star, came back to uh, record JoJo Dance in his neighborhood, the guy walked up with a kid. It was like, give me an autograph, Richard. He said he was standing there like, you don't remember sucking my dick when I was a kid? And he said the man had a baby on his side. And Richard was thinking to himself, did you suck that baby dick today? Oh, my God. <laughs> Something to that manner. And boy, I fucking fell out laughing. I was like, Richard probably make a lot of money being honest. So I was like, I'm going to start being honest. It wasn't even about the money. He just gave me the courage of being honest with who I was and not giving a fuck. God, that's what we need in Asia, more black people. Because uh, <laughs> we, we just, we're just not honest. We just, I mean, it just drives me crazy. When I go back to Japan, the last time, they, they call me Kedamono, which is Japanese for like, I don't know, like a beast or like an animal because they were asking me questions like, how was the meal? I said, like, it tastes like shit. 
of course, my aunt's really angry because, you know, it's my aunt's best friend's place, whatever, but they never tell you the truth. They just, they, I don't know what because it is. Because that's what, that's how they're trained. Yeah. And, and people are trained to not make other, to tell the truth, not make other people uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, if you, uh, you know, you got to start being truthful. You know, if the, if it, I went to a white Thanksgiving, it was different. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. It's different. You got to talk about it because that was like one of the things that just made me laugh. You told me you were invited to. I want this. I want to hear this. You were invited to. Oh, she going to listen. She he, might be listening. Oh, uh, you were invited. I went to this white yeah, lady, yeah, which is a fan. Yeah, I don't know yeah. her name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I went to her Thanksgiving and she invited me. In, um, when was this? Last year. Okay. Yeah. And I'll go to this. I never told this on the podcast. Forgive me if you hear me. <laughs> uh, but it's a funny story. So I go to her Thanksgiving, and it's nothing like a black Thanksgiving. She yeah. got, she had no macaroni and cheese, I don't think. Yeah. And, you know, that's a black, this motherfucker had green bean casserole. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck are these green beans swimming in? You know, it was like fucking uh, cream of mushroom yeah. soup. Yeah. It was horrible. With fucking breadcrumbs on top, the fucking she, she, she was like, they don't call it chicken dressing. Black yeah. people call it, they call it stuffing. And this bitch literally pulled the stuffing in the top of the skillet and fried it with salt. What the fuck is this shit? And so, and it, everything tastes the same. Everything tastes like rolls, bread, <laughs> and, and it was just, it was different yeah. to sit there when I should have said, this food is horrible, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> what, and was that a quiet meal? Uh, no, they like to talk. These oh, white okay. people like to talk. No, they was they they like to talk. You know, because she was a fan, and you know, I like I still talk to her that day. But that was the most different Thanksgiving. Wait, I've wait. Ever so this is a fan inviting you to Thanksgiving? Because yes. you were on the road. Yeah, I was in Madison. Oh, Wisconsin. Yeah, and she, man, when I tell you With that chicken dress, Yoshi Obayashi, the and he like she, I'm used to people. Even I'm black. I'm used to black people taking the ham, the turkey, and cut it. Yeah. That bitch went over there, karate chop the turkey, and just yank every piece of the yeah, turkey yeah, apart. Yeah. And I'm saying to myself. Where they cook turkeys at? You ain't got no honey baked ham turkey? The fuck? You know, because I could have brought you a ham. My cousin work at a honey baked ham, so she steal hams. <laughs> I could have got you one on a discount, bitch. You ain't had to get no fucking Kroger ham yeah. or no grocery store ham. So it was so fucking different. I mean, the food all tastes the same. I don't give a fuck how much hot sauce. You know, black people love hot sauce. How No hot sauce could give it taste. I can't wait till you come to Stan's Thanksgiving. That's what I'm, th yeah, that's what I'm waiting for. <laughs> nah, nah, I'm staying married to a white lady. <laughs> they gotta come to my house. I'm doing Thanksgiving at my house. Where you so mad? You, I, I don't want to go where you gonna see. If I come to stand Thanksgiving, I'm gonna lose weight. <laughs> I want you to come to my Thanksgiving where you gonna gain Game weight. weight. Yeah, that motherfucker. I went. I used to be a medical assistant, right? So I go to the doctor house for Thanksgiving. And this is when I realized white people was different. <laughs> so I go, they had a thing, you know how you have, no, it was a Christmas dinner. And um, this lady served her food. It was no collard green, no macaroni cheese. It was literally, you had a bowl of salad. Where the fuck they do that at on a holiday? And 
I think she's saying they was eating some caviar, which looked like a bunch of fucking bird shit on yeah. a cracker. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, they only had two black employees, and it was like, whatever the wife's name, I'm just going to make a Mary, this is delicious. And I'm sitting there like a real nigga, like, what the fuck is delicious <laughs> in this motherfucker? <laughs> this bitch serving us crackers and fucking hum. Bird shit. Bird shit. <laughs> <laughs> and salads. And I don't even remember what the meat was, but she served it to you like you was at a fancy restaurant, like just a small yeah. portion with a flower on top. And I'm like, what the bitch? I left my house on my day out to come up here for this bullshit. <laughs> oh, that didn't even top it out. So we had to give gifts. Everybody pull names and we give a gift. So, you know, I'm a, they said keep the gift up on the $10. So I went out and bought somebody one of those things, that, you know, a little shower thing without a shower gel. So this white lady gave me, I don't know the name of it, the thing that tell you when it's going to rain. You know, they had a little, what did they call it, barometers? Barometer. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know what the fuck a barometer was. <laughs> All I said, I unwrapped it and I said, what the fuck am I going to do with a duck with water in it? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody busts out laughing. The lady who gave me the gift had a straight face. <laughs> but I didn't know what I said. One of the nurses would laugh so hard. I said, what the fuck is this duck doing with water in it? I said, what is this? So the lady who gave me the gift, she's like, it's a barometer. I said, what the fuck? He, what he do, bitch? Do he quack? What the fuck do this duck do? She said, it's going to tell you when it's rain. And I said, I'm black with a weave, bitch. I know when it's going to rain. <laughs> <laughs> fuck. Yes, I know when it's going to rain, bitch. I'm black with a weave. And, and this lady was so offended. Well, that's all I could afford it. I said, you didn't buy this. You took this shit off your wet knock shelf. Wherever you keep your fucking little ducks and birds at, that's where you took this shit at. So, so funny. And so I took the barometer home because by this time they don't calm me down. I took the barometer home and I set this nigga in the window. He really worked. <laughs> when it was going to rain, all the water really went to the duck head. Oh, my God. <laughs> I said, white people different. <laughs> they different. Because I don't want to, I spent my whole $10. She grabbed some shit off her shelf and wrapped it up and gave it to me. What, my, it's not about the thought. Uh, bitch, I don't need to know when it's going to rain. I don't give a fuck about the rain. I that's know when the, it's going to rain. That's your least of a worry. Well, really. I've been shot in the titty. Yeah. Every time it rained, my fucking <laughs> nipple itch. So I got an automatic <laughs> barometer. I don't need your fucking barometer. <laughs> Fucking duck. I got a fucking nipple that itches really bad when yeah. it rains. And that, I was like, white people are different. I, I can't deal with this bullshit. Stan, do you know any other story that she, she is a funny, but she hasn't talked on the podcast? Um, yeah. Uh, actually, well, this is one that you told at the, the gaslight, and I, I, it is hilarious. And, and if you want to talk about it, I know you're a child of the 80s. Like, Yoshi, you're 80s. I'm, I'm 80s. So we're all, we're all pretty much the same age, but I know you really had an affinity for Pac-Man. Back in the day, you oh, love Pac Man. I didn't say I haven't told that story. Yeah, um, this is a great. Uh, <laughs> my, I don't think I ever. Uh, I think I did it on Mark. I don't know. But you love you love Pac. -Man I love Pac Man. Back so back in the day, on I, the weekend, it used to be all the rage back in the eighty. Everybody yeah. loved playing Pac Man. So on a weekend, a lot of time, my mama would have me. And the drunk people who fall asleep in our house, she would yeah. have me go in their pockets and steal their money, and she would pay me five dollars <laughs> oh a person. Yeah. 
And so that weekend, I didn't make no money. Yeah. And so my brother woke me up and he said, you want to go play Pac-Man? I was like, well, I'm about eight years old. I was like, I ain't made no fucking money tonight, last night. And he was like, oh, don't worry. I know how to get some money. I was like, how? He was like, oh, we, I'm going to steal uh, sharing food stamps. I said, oh, okay. He said, you just watch out. Now this dumb motherfucker going there and steal all the food. That's back when food stamps was like papers in a book. This was uh, this was your grandfather's yeah, food stamps, I, I remember? No, no, this was my aunt food stamp, but we all lived at my grandfather's house. Okay, so this was That's your, how you got this, involved. This was your aunt's. Okay, yeah, so okay, we okay. steal the food stamps, and um, we go and we play Pac-Man. Yeah. Back in those days, you can take the food stamps, and you can um, you can buy like a 10-cent piece of candy, they give you 96 back. That's your Pac-Man. Pack. I remember. Okay. We down there all day playing Pac-Man, eating junk food. We get home, my granddaddy up, my aunt up, and we walk through the door, and she was like, Daddy go, Daddy, them niggas stole my food stamp. Now, we had already promised that we weren't going to tell we were going to die together. We going to go down in this shit together because we don't split the food stamp. Yeah. So my granddaddy had a belt and a rope in his hand. Oh, no. And he said, who stole the fucking food stamp? We all together. We don't know who stole the food stamp, granddaddy. <laughs> we don't know who stole the food stamp. So my granddad had my granddad had beans in his roof, like the beans. You know how people put those little custom beans. Yeah. He threw the rope in the bean, grabbed my cousin, put him in the chest. Said, "Which one of you niggas stole the food stamp?" And we all we all know, granddad. He put that motherfucking rope around my cousin's neck. Wait, 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 wait. Put the rope around my cousin's neck and put him in. He put him in a chair. Put the rope around his neck and pull that fucking chair away from up under him. And there was my fucking cousin, Fat Man, hanging like a sleigh. And all oh I said was, "Granddaddy ain't stole the food stamp. I ain't dying over no motherfucking Pac Man. I heard it's gonna be a new Miss Pac Man coming." <laughs> my wait, wait, wait. So you gonna let him hang like KKK? Yeah, for, for Miss Pac Man. No, they was. I told after I saw my cousin hanging. <laughs> Because my granddaddy said, I'm the next motherfucker is the youngest to the oldest. So I was next. I was like, oh, hell no. You ain't about to hang me, nigga. So I told. And my granddad, it seemed like my cousin was hanging for 30 minutes. It probably was like a good, maybe a second or so. But the way that nigga was spinning around in that chair, <laughs> I was like, holy shit. He going to hang up. Wait, wait, wait. He really was hanging? He was hanging. Yeah. <laughs> he was hanging. Man, and that's, man, when that's I told, old school. Yeah, when I told my granddad put him in that chair, my cousin just got. And all I could think, oh, if he hang me, I'm never going to get to play Miss Pat, man. That's all. Fuck my cousin dying. My whole thing was is I've been waiting for Miss Pac-Man to come out, and you was not going to fuck it up with me by, for me by hanging me. So I had to tell. So my my brother, was like, you a snitch? I was like, did you not see that nigga hanging? Did you not see him hanging? Oh my god! You gonna tell me I'm snitching? Who the fuck ain't gonna snitch? You know. And so they stopped stealing with me after that. So I started stealing on my own. <laughs> yeah, he hung the shit out my cousin, fat man. That, that's the only time I ever seen a black man hanging. And I by I, a black man. <laughs> that's the only time I've seen one oh hanging in person. Over Pac Man. That's, That's black on black hanging. Yeah, hanging. Mean, he was hanging. That shit blew my mind. Cause I, you know, cause you saw a lot of shit at the, the bootleg house. But a dude hanging? Oh my god, that shit scared the living shit out of me. Stan, you have another another story? Do you remember? I don't. Uh, I mean, you you just talked a lot about. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, you, you. I think you've told the hand job story, which I thought was hilarious. And then and you went home and told your mom, and she wanted a job too, which I thought was. Yeah, she wanted Jack Dick too, and I'm like, uh, uh-uh, uh, you too old. 
<laughs> you gonna fuck it up. We gonna get a discount. <laughs> Cause uh-huh. she had diabetes. Nobody wants sweet fingers on their dick. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants sweet fingers on their dick. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Well, Miss Pat, I mean, God, thanks for. I mean, I've heard enough of your podcast. So. You got a bunch of new ones that I haven't heard, but the hanging one, holy Christ, Jesus yeah. Christ. Um, thanks for telling me all your stories. And um, I, I'm telling you, um, I, I think uh, I think I think we've talked before uh, taping. I hope you have a chance to talk to Anthony Cumia because, you know, the conference, for those of you who don't know, he used to be on the show called Open Anthony show in his, uh, New York City. And. When he used to have conversations with Patrice, it's one of the greatest things I've ever heard on radio and comedy. Because Patrice said, uh, whatever, whatever the difference they might have as you know, black person, white person, Patrice said uh, Anthony is one of the funniest person he's ever met. And I, I really enjoy, and Stan probably feel the same way. We love hearing uh, Patrice and Anthony talk. And I, I just feel like, y- Thank God we have you, you know, because uh, I I think I would love to hear you and you and Anthony talk. Um, well, if Anthony ever called me, I would yeah. go. Yeah, I would go. I mean, and people try all the time to get me on, you know, say stuff about Anthony Coomas and the whole situation, what he went through with uh, what happened at XM Radio. I don't know the guy. Yeah. So I try to treat people with an open mind. Yeah. You, you know, a lot of times when you get mad, you say shit that you Yeah, regret. I've said some crazy so, shit, too. I mean... It's nothing wrong with not liking people. The problem comes when you want to kill a person Absolutely. because they of a certain race. Yeah. Now, I don't give a fuck about you not liking me. That's okay. Because yeah. I don't like black people sometimes either. And I don't like Asians right. when they fuck up my hair yeah. or they fuck up my feet <laughs> yeah. or whatever y'all do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, And I don't like white people when they be fucking with me. So, you know, sure. we all don't like people for certain reasons. But I don't know the dude. So, yeah. to me, he's just a guy, you know, I people are like oh he's a racist to me not to me yeah. he's just a human being now if I go on his show and he proved to me he's a racist then he's a racist as I, far I, as I can see it I'm I'm, I'm excited I, I hope uh, you know uh, I can't wait for your book I can't wait to see your one women show I can't wait till you have your sitcom you know movie this and that and I can uh, I hope um, I, I would love to see you in Last Comic Standing next season that's what uh, Cam, I hope that happens Miss Pat. Well, I hope it do too. So we'll see. Because I could see, uh, I could already see Roseanne and Russell Peters would definitely like you. But um, thanks for doing the show. Uh, can you give? Um, um, I, I don't. I don't know. I'll, I'll release it next Monday. So any upcoming dates? Your Twitter account, um, your uh, uh, web page. Next Monday, October the tenth. Well, that's this weekend. So go to my website, MissPatComedy.com, and see where I'm gonna be at. Um, yeah, well, uh, Twitter comedian Miss Pat. Facebook comedian, Miss Pat, you know, and keep an eye out for the things that I'm working on. I don't know if I'm going to be on Last Comedy Standing, but I have a showcase. That's all I can say. Okay. And all my friends in Europe, you got to bring Miss Pat to, uh, like, Zulu Comedy Festival in Denmark, uh, Comedy Festival in Finland and Sweden, and then please book her because... You guys gonna love her. She uh, she's terrific. Stan Chan, thanks for doing. It. I'm glad uh, you were able to uh, introduce Miss Pat. All the talking shit podcast fans were telling me like they you they been telling me even like a couple days ago you gotta meet up with Miss Pat. So anyway, thanks for doing the show, Miss Pat. Thank you, baby. I, I want to see you in L.A. and um, 
Boy, you, you're a come funny out. motherfucker. I mean, I mean, <laughs> your kids are very lucky to have you. I mean, uh, tell them that because I'm about to go home and beat their asses. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, thanks for listening and uh, talk to you guys soon. <laughs>